Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, February 14, 843-661-0937. Our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. I would say happy Valentine's Day, but the only person that I need to say that to is probably not awake yet. <laughs> True. Same here. She's a, she's my wife, but not a loyal fan. <laughs> <laughs> She's not a, not a loyal fan. She's not, well, I, mean, I think she's a fan at times, but yeah, you go do your thing and, and I'll do mine. But in I, other words, she's not waking up early to hear the beginning of the show. So she doesn't miss a second. I think she may have to begin with, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Kind of the, you know, to support her husband in his new endeavor. I want to be a, um, you know, the good wife and uh, she ain't a stand by your man. Remember Hillary Clinton and Tammy one and stand by your, yeah. she ain't one of those stand by your man women she does her own thing um and deserves to do but anyway uh, before i get in trouble um happy valentine's day Good to news. all of our female listeners hope it is a wonderful beautiful experience and the um the man of your life celebrates you as you deserve to be celebrated there eight four three six six very nice oh nine three seven today's going to be a weird show today um <laughs> We're going to really? no. I, I told Josh. Josh kind of lines everything up. Rev makes sure all the equipment works. I run my mouth. That's kind of the um. That would be the the cliff note description of what each and every one of us do here, associated with this feeble attempt at radio brilliance. So I went to Josh and said, Josh, give me the seven o'clock hour. What do you mean? I leave it open. L- leave the seven o'clock hour open. We've got some guests. We got some features. We've got. I mean, Thursday's always different. Friday, obviously is different uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We have pretty much control over the schedule. So I said, give me the 7 o'clock hour. Um, I got a video. That's an audio. Obviously, you can't see the video of the radio, but it's a um, it's a podcast by David Sachs. And David Sachs is, I mean, Josh was familiar with the All In podcast. David Sachs is a uh, tech entrepreneur in the, remember, uh, CP? The guy that we yeah. introduced, Bitcoin and all the um Palahapatea. <sighs> yeah, CP. Yeah. Let, let's stick with CP. Okay. Um he has a podcast that very often features Elon Musk and CP and Peter Thiel. Some of the tech entrepreneurs, tech gazillionaires, some of the um innovative and disruptive forces. Of our lives, I mean, when you think of Teal and Musk, I think disruption. Maybe that's my attraction here. Um, I know what my attraction ain't with Teal, but maybe the attraction is one of these tech disruptors. Um, we've historically, I mean, I'll give you an example. Musk and Teal co-founded PayPal when they were in their early 20s. Now, they sold it, I think, to Google or Yahoo or somebody for umpteen. Enough money to wreck a McLaren. I mean, when you're like 24, 25 years old, you sell something and you buy your McLaren and out of that comes an accident, knocks over the fiberglass, you know, underskirting off the car. You've done okay. Um, the great story of this, I don't know if you've ever heard this story. Elon at 26 or 7 or 8, somewhere thereabout, um, I think it might have been 25. He and Peter Thiel decided to believe that there was going to be a need for people to pay their debts online. You know, Josh has something for sale. Um, Josh doesn't trust me, doesn't know me, can't accept a buy. Hey, I'll mail you a check, Josh. Send me that um, send me that love seat or pair of set of tires that you're trying to sell on the internet. You gotta trust good old Ken. Country I mean, I'll send you a check. 
Elon realized that you couldn't conduct commerce online without some reliable way of payment. So he and Teal got together um, in one of the Stanford University um, Innovative Centers, and they got together and said, hey, there's going to be a, a need. I mean, eventually the Internet will become so big that people will buy so many things online, there's got to be kind of a designated way to pay, a very secure and designated way to pay. Um, they went to, if I'm not mistaken, don't hold me to this, I think they went to one of either Arthur Blank or Ken Langone about funding. Got this idea. Don't have any money. Got this idea. Can you help us out? And very similar to what, uh, who was it that told Home Depot no? The reason I think it's Home Depot, we talked yesterday about um, Ross Perot. Ross Perot, when asked the worst decision he ever made in business, he said it's when Ken Langone and Peter, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank came to see him and said, hey, man, we're going to start a business, kind of business. A, um, a business, not a lumberyard, not a hardware store, but a business that includes everything somebody would need if they want to build a home. I mean, they could come to our superstore and buy everything they'll ever need to build a home. And Big Ears said, that's crazy. I mean, we're not doing I mean, that that's absurd. I'm staying in my lane. I do what I do. And Ross Perot decided to not be an investor in um, Home Depot. Hmm. If I'm not mistaken, either Teal or Musk or both went to Arthur Blank or Peter or um or Ken Langone and kind of made the same sort of overture. Hey, we got this idea. What's the idea? We think that so many people will buy things online. There needs to be a designated and secure way for you to transfer your funds instantaneously. That's crazy. That's crazy. We just put scanners in our Home Depots, and they don't need hardly. I mean, people don't do that. They write checks. They pay with cash. Get out of here. And they got out of there. And, you know, five years later, they wrecked a McLaren from the proceeds <laughs> of PayPal and selling it to um, selling it to either Google or Yahoo, one of the one of the tech companies that were far, further ahead. Um, cash flow positive is what I'd say in, uh, in our world. And, uh, I mean, that Google's the most powerful company in the world. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Google is probably more powerful than the federal government. I mean, I really, really? believe that. I'm thinking about the, the power the government has. I mean, the government has the right, to, I mean, the authority to press charges and apply justice. Google doesn't have that. But good land, the influence they have on our modern and enlightened um, society. <laughs> anyway, there's, there's a guy named David Sachs who started a podcast, All In. And it centers on innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, and at times it dabbles in politics. And it's begun dabbling in policy, politics a lot lately since Elon bought X. I mean, I said X. It's working. I mean, yeah. the branding changes. Yeah. It's working. It'll take a while, but yeah. And, and they're talking more and more about politics. And there's a debate. And I want to play at the 7 o'clock hour. I'll get out of the way and let smart people explain, really smart people and elected officials. Some some of the elected officials. I mean, in this case, Ron Johnson, uh, Mike Lee, and I think that's the only two. No, JD JD. Vance. JD Vance is there. So it's Vance Lee and Ron Johnson, along with Vivek Ramaswamy, and they walk you through, as well as anybody I've ever heard, why the no vote on Ukrainian funding was the right vote. 
I mean, the media fills you with storylines and factoids that are spun to the nth degree. This debate, this conversation, it's not a debate. It's more of a conversation. It is as enlightening about why it makes no sense to continue to send money to Ukraine. And Lee talks about leaning on his fellow Republicans. Here's an interesting factoid. You ready? I read on Twitter, so take it for what it's worth. I'm not researched this, but I read this morning that every no vote in the Senate, excuse me, every yes vote in the Senate with an R beside their name on Ukrainian funding were over the age of 55. I mean, that's, that's the Cold War. I mean, that's the influence of the Cold War. Uh, that there's, that's undeniable. Um, I've not seen any polling. I asked Haley this a few days back. Robert, if you were to poll something not about Nikki Haley, and speaking of polling, I don't know if you saw this Monday, probably should have touched on it yesterday, didn't. Um, this, this introspective ba- uh, battle I'm having with the data and my instinct. And my instinct led me to believe last week that South Carolina was going to be closer than anyone could imagine. I never said it was going to be a cliffhanger. I never said it's going to be, you know, decided two days later by a hanging Chad. Uh, I said it's going to be a little bit closer than most people expect it to be. The CBS News poll just obliterates that. I don't know if you saw the poll or no. not. Uh, it's got Trump at 65, Nikki at 30. Hmm. I mean, that's the, the most recent poll. That would have been uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is when they went in the field, so to speak. So have and you the changed results, your mind? Is your gut still telling you? It doesn't. Okay. I mean, it, it, I can't. I can't shake this feeling as much as I'd as I'd like to. I mean, if Trump wins sixty five thirty, wow, wow. I mean, I just can't see that happening. That there are some other polls out there that slide the percentage of independents and Democrats that they believe will participate. And I just got to believe, Rev. I got to believe that if anybody can convince Democrats and Republicans to vote against Donald Trump, it's Nikki Haley in South Carolina. Maybe that's the hunch. I mean, once again, I don't have any data. I don't have an analytic that, 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 that reinforces what I'm trying to convince myself of, except that there's going to be some, some homerism in play. And Nikki's not going to Alabama and convince independents and Democrats to vote for her. She's got a network. She was a governor of South Carolina for eight years. There's a political infrastructure that still exists. How loyal? I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you how, what I do know. The person that she replaced, excuse me, the person that she benefited most by Trump making, uh, Ambassador Don, uh, Henry McMaster supports Trump. I mean, if anybody should support Nikki Haley, it's Henry McMaster because he gets the gig as a result of him supporting Trump as lieutenant governor. I got to believe Trump called Henry and said, Henry, thank you for the support. You kind of catapulted us. I mean, you helped us along our way. Is there anything you and Peggy are interested in? And it would normally be an ambassadorship to Costa Rica. But Henry wanted to be governor of South Carolina. And I got to believe Henry said, well, darling, you don't know nothing I want to do, but I'll tell you what, that lady across the hall, I mean, if you could find her something to do, that certainly would help my chances <laughs> of being a prominent South Carolina politician, which I have been ambitious of the majority of my adult life. So Nikki gets the job. <laughs> Nikki gets the job. <laughs> Love it. Nikki gets the job at, at the United Nations. Henry moves his furniture from one side of the state house into the other and is the longest standing governor in the history of South Carolina. 
10 years, Henry McMaster uh, would have been governor. You know the, uh, the, the, the unknown trivia question here? What's that? If I hadn't gotten in trouble. <laughs> right. And Trump would have called me. Nikki wouldn't be governor. No, Nikki would still be governor, and I'd be ambassador to Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> I would have taken a different path. Right. <laughs> I said, Ken, thank you for endorsing us. You really helped us along our way. Is there anything you want? Uh, how about that ambassadorship to Costa Rica? <laughs> I, can, I can stand a little. How about the governorship? How about if we do something with Nikki and you move over there? I still kind of like yeah, that ambassadorship yeah. to Costa Rica, no thanks. Mr. President. So, um, yeah, send me and my wife, who I just wish happy Valentine's Day, send us a couple of airline tickets, and we'll mosey along our way, not to the other side of the state house, but rather to Costa Rica. Anyway, back to a serious matter. We owe our listeners more serious efforts than this. Back to a serious matter. Um, but that's how it played out, and the CBS poll 6530 that just kind of shoots down my theory. But but if if 20% of the votes cast in two weeks, if 20% are independent or Democrat, I'm right. I mean, if, if, if that number starts getting up, it's, it's historically less than 10. But if 20% of independents and Democrats vote in the GOP primary, Trump wins by 17, maybe 18, could get as low as 16, and that gets Nikki close to 41, 42, 43. And what did she say? I got to do better in South Carolina than I did in New Hampshire. And I went back, it's about 42.5% in New Hampshire. And if she gets 42% of the vote, I would imagine it's on to Super Tuesday for um, Nikki Haley and her campaign. But I want to take in the, in the 7 o'clock hour, uh, Josh has given me permission to kind of set that hour aside. And I want to play this. Um, uh, we may play 20 minutes of it. I mean, it's going to be odd. Uh, we, we may interrupt it occasionally and you hear a little bit, but it is a very in-depth analysis and kind of an evaluation of why Lee Vance and Johnson were no votes and they have their feces consolidated. I mean, they really, they, 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 they explained themselves and their opposition better than anybody I've heard explain it yet. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Kind of holding on until we get to 7 o'clock. Josh has allowed the host to, upon a personal privilege, to take the 7 o'clock hour and play for you something that I listened to late yesterday afternoon that I find almost riveting. I mean, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but but it really is a, a riveting conversation by really smart entrepreneurs and elected officials. And it kind of plays into some of what I talked about. I did a podcast yesterday and I mean, I like to say the Venn diagram, you know, it's micro, it's macro. How much overlap is there in the micro and macro? It's a big part of politics in America. Um, Flow charts. I mean, I know that doesn't sound political, but it is very political. And I'm a big believer today that the conventional wisdom is waning. The trust that we have and what we've been historically led to believe is true is is waning. I mean, it's like, can the anchor hold? I mean, there's a, a Christian song, uh, the anchor holds. Well, I don't know that the anchor can hold. And once conventional wisdom begins, Rev, the, the moral authority 
that a government has very often is based on this conventional wisdom. It's not real, but, but it goes back to the debate. Josh was nodding his head a second ago when I said everybody over the age of 55 voted yes to send money to Ukraine. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Conventional wisdom told my generation that Russia can't be trusted. I mean, Russia is our geopolitical adversary. We've not changed that. I mean, just because the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore and it's now Russia, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't, it's hard to change that psyche. It's hard to, to change that mindset. So the reason, I would argue, <clears throat> excuse me, that the, the, the senators over the age of 55 voted to fund Ukraine is because they've trusted conventional wisdom. I mean, they've been, I mean, I hate to say this word, you ready? They've been almost trained. I mean, they, they've been almost trained to believe that any time we have a chance to ding Russia, we better take the opportunity. And the bit I want you to hear is a very intellectual articulating of America first resistance to some of the foreign policy of days gone by. I mean, that, that would be the best way to pair, I mean, to couch what you'll hear in the seven o'clock hour. And I hope you'll stick with us and listen because it is really smart I guess America firsters. I don't know. I've never heard Elon say I'm an America firster, but he seems to buy into some of this non-interventionism. Um, I, I don't, I've never heard Elon say about the economy, globalist, nationalist, you know, but, but Elon seems to believe. And I mean, he, he's a hard cat to read. He's very coy intentionally, very coy about where he stands on certain things. But, but he, in this bit leads you to believe we're just absolutely wasting money and getting people killed in the name of whatever our foreign policy was during the Cold War. I mean, there is no, Elon's not a baby boomer. I mean, Elon's not a product of days gone by. He's not a guy that was led to believe the majority of what he believes politically based on a worldview that was heavily influenced by the Cold War. Um, I told Rev this morning, that was me, Josh. I mean, that, that was me up until out of Trump. I mean, I, I was heavily influenced by the, you know, the the peace through through strength, the the buildup, the nuclear, excuse me, the um, the military buildup of the Reagan years and and the Bush years, and this kind of an interventionist doctrine that included us. Um, I'll say now, sticking our nose in places that I'm not sure American interest prevailed. Um, I'm not sure it was global security at risk, and I guess to some degree, global security is is connected to American security, but um. But in the 7 o'clock hour, I think you'll find it interesting when Senator Lee, Senator Johnson, Senator Vance kind of explained to David Sachs, who's a tech entrepreneur, and, um, and CP, won't even try that name, and Elon Musk. It is, it, is, it is what I am ambitious of. I have a burning desire to see more intellectualism in America first. I don't think America first can sustain I mean, keep it simple, stupid. I get that. It's the economy, stupid. I understand that, Reb. But, but foreign policy can get complicated. I mean, things aren't bumper stickers. I mean, government's hard. Self-government's harder at times. And you've got to have an intellectual savviness about you to understand, okay, the American people say they're tired of endless wars. But I, as, as a member of Congress, I've got to have an intellectual reason to support my supporting their belief that we've involved ourselves in too many endless wars. 
And why have we done that? Why have things never worked out the way we've been told they were going to work out? And I think this conversation uh, about 30 minutes from now will help enlighten you as to why some of us have a belief that no more money for Ukraine is the right decision for the American government. Let's I'll, go to the I'll pronounce. Uh, I'll try to pronounce CP so people know who you're talking about because we used, we talked about him on the show before. But it's Shamath Palihapitiya, a tech, a tech entrepreneur, yeah. um, a very smart guy, yeah. very very. If you smart want to look guy. him up, he's an interesting guy. All these guys come from Stanford. None come from the Ivy League. They all come from Stanford. Anarchy is alive and well on the campus in Palo Alto. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Elaine in Florence. Good morning, Elaine. You're on. Um, I have to apologize. I want to change the subject. I know what you're speaking of, um, Ken, is important. But even more important is where we live. And we have a problem with homeless. We have a problem with disregard for the law that controls where these homeless people go and what they do. And we don't have the support of our police department to help these people find a place to sleep without sleeping on the sidewalks, without parking in the parking lot in trucks and cars and using generators to camp. Um, I had several encounters with the police in the last five or so days. Yesterday, I had about a 45-minute meeting, an unexpected meeting with some people in the city. And, you know, I have a high school education. But I know what it means when you have a law that says you can't do it. You got posted property that says you can't do it. But guess what? They do it. And who allows them to do it? Um, I'm just, I'm real frustrated with it. I drive probably six miles a day. I have a very limited life. I'm 75 years old. I have a very limited life. I drive six miles a day from my house to my son's house. Maybe have to go to two with my grandchild. Maybe have to go to a doctor's appointment. That's pretty much, but I am offended by the fact that we have people laying on the sidewalks camping with generators, living in tents on pub, what I consider to be public property because there are businesses on the property that I might need to go into. I understand that these people go into businesses that have the facilities and take baths. Um, you know, I don't know how many people farms realize that. I didn't find it out till yesterday. I'm offended by that, but I am willing to help come up with a solution. I, I, you know, they're nonprofit organizations that have lots of money in banks. Why is that money sitting in a bank when it could be helping somebody that needs a place to stay without rules? Because I understand that some of these people do not want to go to church. They don't want to do this. They don't want counseling, whatever. A, a, a solution needs to be, we're going to be a small New York City, a small San Francisco. When I asked the police department about did they have some kind of database that they could put these people in and cross-check, um, well, they don't have to have in South Carolina, you don't have to have an ID. I ain't talking about an ID. 
I'm talking about papers that make you legal to come across the border. I'm a Democrat, but you know who I like in this world? Greg Abbott. I like Greg Abbott. He is doing what he can to defend his people. And I think the people of Florence need need to get out there and they're smart. There's a lot of people in this town smarter than him. They know where the money comes from. They know where it can be put. And it's pastime when I drive six miles and I encounter so many people that need to be told, you can't park here. You can't sleep here. And, and Thank you, uh, Elaine. Appreciate that. I mean, you've expressed yourself very well, um, very passionately, very sincerely. Um, I mean, I, I'm willing to try and help. I mean, I think if you listen to the show, I've talked a lot about homelessness and the issue of homelessness. The first thing a community has to do is admit it has a problem. I can't do that. I mean, I'm not an elected official. I'm not chairman of county council. I know the chairman of county council extremely well. I'm not the mayor. I know the mayor fairly well. I'm not the chief of police. We, I mean, I've met him and I know him a little bit. I know TJ Joy, the Florence County Sheriff, very well. I mean, I'm willing to be a part of collaborating or getting these groups to collaborate. But it sounds like we need the chief of police, the Florence County Sheriff, the chairman of county council, and the mayor to all agree we have a problem. I mean, I, I got to think there are going to be a variety of solutions offered. There's going to be mixed opinions on what needs to be the priority or what needs to be to be done. But but I'm I'm a big believer. I am sympathetic to someone who is living in the street. I mean, I, yeah, how did you end up there? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I've got enough to say grace over. Maybe that's selfish. You judge me accordingly. But but I've got a wife and a family and a way of life that I'm trying to preserve and protect and and you know do everything I can to 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 maintain my existence in normal fashion. Doesn't mean I don't care about those people. But I can't fix everybody's problem. The, the the community has to understand that its leadership has to admit it has a problem. And then, I mean, we're famous for blue ribbon committees, but there needs to be, I mean, if, 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 the, if the chairman of county council and the mayor of Florence and the city police department and the Florence County Sheriff, I mean, if they agree that we've got a problem with homelessness, then that's the start. I mean, where do we go from there? Well, I mean, we appoint competent, smart people who aren't afraid to do something on a task force. You don't put a bunch of pansies on a task force. You don't put a bunch of get along and go along or go along and get along on a, on a task force. You put men and women who are willing to make tough decisions and judgments, and you enact a plan to make sure people aren't afraid, aren't threatened by, uh, our community's not hindered as a result of, I mean, I'm like the, la- I don't understand it. I mean, I'm, I'm driving down one of the roads I've driven down nearly all my life. And there's six tents, you know, in a, in a field somewhere. And I'm going like, well, I know who owns that land. I mean, how does that happen? You go to a parking lot of the business. I mean, there, there are window shades up on a van, one of these minivans. And, and you know, you got to believe somebody's in there. There's a generator sitting out back with a drop cord running through in a parking lot of a business. I mean, it, it, to me, that's a community in decline. When a community, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying throw the homeless in jail. I'm not saying, hey, they're homeless; it's their fault. Run them out of town. Do them like they did Rambo, you know, vagrancy and loitering. And I'm not saying that. 
but let's let's get our leadership to agree that homelessness is an issue in Florence. It's becoming a bigger issue, and something needs to be done. But nothing's going to be done unless we have an admittance of a problem. And I am with Elaine. We have a problem. I mean, there is a homelessness epidemic in America. Florence is not immune. And its leadership better understand that the problem will get bigger and worse if not addressed. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, I'm thinking about Elaine's comments. That goes back to conventional wisdom. I mean, conventional wisdom says the day that you complain about the homeless, you know, the the the, the media and narrative creators and controllers say, well, you know how those closed-minded MAGA extremists are. I mean, they want everybody to be stale, pale, and male. But but now people seem to be a little more liberated. I mean, I, I said earlier, I care genuinely, sincerely about the homelessness. I don't know how people get there. I don't have any idea. Is it self-inflicted? Is it, is it addiction? Is it mental illness? Is it laziness? I don't have any idea how many homeless people there are or how they ended up there. I just know that people who inhabit a community deserve to live in a community where the law is enforced and society norms prevail. And it's not normal to have eight tents in a parking lot at a business and three vans with generators out back. I mean, that, society can't bless that. We can't allow that to be normal. It doesn't mean that, that, I, that I'm mean and I don't care about the homeless and I, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't care about my fellow man. I, I don't, you know, you know how those Jesus folks are. You know how those Christians are. I mean, they, they, they gum up in church and they pray with one another, but when they get out in the real world, I mean, when they get out in the real world, they're as hateful as everybody else is. That's just unfair. I think you can care about the homeless, but not want the homeless threatening you or your community. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Hey, Charles, you're on. Good morning from the large town with one stoplight. Uh, the only town in South Carolina with under 1,000 residents that made the Rush Limbaugh show talking about the mayor and we have shootouts in church parking lots among the parishioners. But anyway, um, we lost the House seat yesterday. New York 3 switched from Republican to Democrat with the expulsion of George Santos. And the exit polls showed that the number one issue among the voters was immigration. Number two was abortion. I called this show for the first time three years ago in April and said in that comment, we just need to stop talking about abortion, let the courts do what they're going to do and stop talking about it. And we've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, got Lindsey Graham proposing national bans on abortion. And now here we are, we lose the House seat, the number two issue ultimately determined that i just thought i'd throw that out there and uh we got to figure out what to do about it because regardless of what the polls show polls in new york showed that was a neck and neck race and i think it went out about five or six points and it's all about the abortion issue so anyway i wanted to throw that out there because you know i have a seven o'clock meeting on wednesday mornings and i don't get out till nine and that's the ken and jeff show so I uh, wanted to get my point in. Y'all have a y'all have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. And I don't know that there's a good answer there. 
Um, Charles is right. I mean, I saw some of the same. I'm, I'm still trying to make heads or tails of the snowstorm and the turnout. Um, I mean, there's there's a belief among some of the Republican insiders. I mean, they're they're CYA is what it is. But you know the um the the turnout kept some of the older voters at home, and the older voters seem in that district to vote more Republican than not. Um, I mean, the margin was larger than the polls had estimated. But there's no denying that the Democrats are going to try and make this presidential election and midterm congressional and Senate races, for that matter, where abortion's a central issue. Um, in New Hampshire primary, it's immigration inflation. and in the Iowa caucus, it's inflation immigration. But the general election is going to include, as a major issue, abortion. It's not a big issue in the GOP primaries. It's going to be a big issue. Because the media is going to make it a big issue. The Democrats are obviously going to try and make it a big issue. And the Republicans have to gain some consensus on where they stand. I don't say we talk as one. I mean, I think Josh has every right to have a different opinion on abortion than I do. And I don't kick him out of the party. He doesn't kick me out of the party. Um, But we've got to get our heads around kind of a national story, a national and compelling narrative of where the party is on abortion. And, and that's going to be, I mean, that's going to be critically, it's going to be very important in some places, not as important in others, but don't, don't convince yourself that because the primary is about immigration and inflation, the general's going to be, the media is going to force abortion front and center and Republicans are going to have to answer questions about a woman's right to choose. And we need to find a reasonable and pragmatic place to land. I'm sorry. In the name of winning elections, reasonableness and pragmatism is more effective than getting exactly what you want every single time that you want it. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning, Rujan. You are on. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, listen, Ken, I was doing a little, little uh, you know, research yesterday, and I came across something very interesting. Um uh, 57% of all the illegal immigrants are determined to be uh, military-age men. Um, now, here's the thing. They're illegal, uh, but when they come here, they get benefits. Illegal, and they're getting benefits. So if you got 57%, I'll even drop it down to, to you know, I'd say, I'd say, you know, 50% of those guys that are coming here are getting benefits for, for, for being illegal. Now, if you contrast that with you compare that with with uh, only six point nine percent of those individuals that are male that receive benefits from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and HUD, only six point nine percent of those eligible to receive benefits are getting them, compared to fifty percent of those illegal. And those six point nine is legal. Now, I know we got laws like Son of Sam, and I know primarily Son of Sam laws, you know say that people can't benefit from their crime by, you know, writing a book or whatever. And I know not all states have it, but the, but a majority of states have it. Why would we allow anyone to come into this country illegally, skirt our laws, and we benefit, let them benefit from that? Is that nuts or what? You, you when Americans can't get it. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Rujan. Yes, it's well, nuts. I mean, it, it, it's absolute nuts. I mean, it's nuts that we reward breaking the law. But it's hard to argue illegal immigration. Either illegal means you break the law or not. 
I mean, let's call them asylum seekers. I mean, let's stop using the word illegals. I mean, if they're, and, and it goes back to really and truly some of the border security policies. We don't, why would we pass another border security package when they're not enforcing the laws already on the book? I mean, is there a new improved version of laws or iteration of laws that will get enforced? I mean, the word, that's what I've never understood about the debate. But, but once again, I'm a simple man. I mean, I'm not a complicated thinker. I'm not a chess player. I'm checkers is more my style. Illegal either means what it, what Daniel Webster said it means or it doesn't. It's, it's breaking the law. You illegally enter the country. The first action you take is in violation of our statutes and laws. That should prohibit you from enjoying any of the benefit that, that America offers. But we decide in the name of, I don't know, fairness, diversity, equity, inclusion. I don't have any idea how Democrats base that analysis. I mean, I don't. I don't know how they get there, um, except I, I guess they're more compassionate than we are. But, but either words mean something or they don't. And if words don't mean anything, then we're not a nation of laws. We profess to be, but we're really not. Take a break. Back at a few. I'm not going to give the number because this is going to be a different kind of hour. I'm taking personal privileges. Josh gave the green light. Rev has agreed second, a second to the motion. I, w- I want to be fair here. I mean, I, I, I've made it clear where I stand. And if I were a member of Congress, you'd have to offer a really, really sweet deal on border security for me to send another red dime to Ukraine. I mean, it's not that I want Ukrainians to die. It's not that I want Putin marching across Western Europe. None of that's true, but there's, we're, we're sending good money after bad. If we invest another dollar in the war in Ukraine, I am convinced of that. I've read it. I've studied it. I don't work for the military industrial complex. Uh, you know, I, I, none of our sponsors are Boeing or Raytheon or Honeywell. I'm not beholden to, um, I don't know, uh, agree to a narrative that I believe is, it's a bit prehistoric. I mean, I think it's, um, but, but I want to be fair. And Rick, uh, Rick Wilson of Lincoln Project, I think he ran Romney's campaign, had a lot to do with Romney's campaign. He's been a, a member of Conservative Inc. for a long, long, long time. He's a never-Trumper. I mean, he hates everything there is to hate about Donald Trump. I mean, they, they, they ran kind of a pedophilia ring. Anyway, that's the story. Uh, that would be the Weaver uh, associate of the Lincoln Project. But, um... But Rick Wilson's an old hand at what I'll call the former Republican orthodoxy. And Trump wants to disrupt this. And the Trump voters tired of the neocons, you know, running the joint, selling endless wars and globalist trade policies that I believe have been harmful to the American working class. But I want to be fair. And I want to give Rick Wilson a chance to interview John Bolton over these airwaves. I mean, there's a uh, Rick Wilson does a podcast. He welcomed uh, John Bolton. So in the, in the spirit of fairness, I want our listeners to hear someone articulate support for spending more money in Ukraine before we go to a group of men who say, nah, it doesn't make any, and I'll let you decide. I'm not here to tell you what you need to believe or what you need to think, but here's about seven minutes, six and a half minutes of Rick Wilson and John Bolton um, that nails the time to step up and support Ukraine in the name of stopping Vladimir Putin's march across Europe. 
guest today is Ambassador John Bolton. We are honored to have him on the Enemies List podcast today. We've got a tight 15 minutes with the ambassador, so I want to get right into it, sir. Um, I, I, would, I want to ask you about the transformation of the Republican Party that, that you and I grew up in into something that has now become uh, pro-Kutin and sort of pro-authoritarian in a lot of ways. What do you, what do you see as the, as the future of that party as a, as a part of America's foreign policy and diplomatic and military strength in the world? Well, I hope that party that you described doesn't have much of a future. And uh, I, I believe, uh, notwithstanding what the commentary says, I believe Trump is an aberrational figure in American politics. Yes. Uh, he doesn't have a philosophy himself. He doesn't think in policy terms. He thinks only about what benefits Donald Trump. And, and I therefore think when he finally leaves the political scene, he will leave no heir apparent. He will not leave any coherent basis on which to proceed. There'll be people who emulate his theatrical attributes, mm -hmm. uh, of which there are a number. But I think a lot of people in Congress who sound like Trumpers, are intimidated by him. It's not that they agree with him. They're intimidated. That's good news and bad news, but right. <laughs> it's better that they don't agree with him. Uh, and I just think the rest of us have to keep up pushing for Reaganite policies. They were right in 1980. Obviously, we're a long way away from that, but the philosophy behind the policies is what should guide us in the future. And I think we can get back to that. Uh, it, it won't be easy given the duration of Trump's appeal, which, which uh, has been surprising in American political terms, but, but it doesn't mean things are changed forever. I, I, I think that's right. I think that, that he is so bespoke, he's so uniquely, you know, a cultural presence that it's hard to imitate him in the future as a leader, which is good, especially because, you know, on, on, you know, I both come from the right side of the fence, but, you know, there was a great historical tradition in the U.S. from Truman forward that we took the Russians with a big grain of salt. We tried to make sure that we address this, that that very pro-Putin sort of the you know the pinnacle of it being Helsinki and 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 now the sort of Republican flip on Ukraine. What do you see as the future right now of of Ukraine in the course of this giant debate we're having in Washington over funding the additional uh, military aid they need to to keep up the fight against Putin? I'm very worried about Ukraine. I think it's in a perilous position. I think the Tucker Carlson interview with uh, Vladimir Putin uh, demonstrates Putin is now doing something I was afraid of uh, for, for the past year. He's now basically saying he's prepared to negotiate. I think he needs a ceasefire to regroup. Mm -hmm. uh, he will basically double Russian control over Ukrainian territory, although at a terrible human cost from Russia's point of view. But if Putin can buy time, uh, he'll be back at it. I think Biden will jump at the chance to negotiate uh, uh, a ceasefire in Ukraine to take one major problem off the table in front of him. I'm very much afraid the Europeans would just like to turn the page on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. the, the looming possibility of a Trump presidency has to worry Zelensky and his government. Sure. So uh, with, with our inability to get the uh, legislative approval of, of necessary assistance for Ukraine, uh, Putin has moved into a prime position, and I think Trump will exacerbate it uh, with his comments. Uh, so it's uh, it really requires people to speak up for the reasons why we aid Ukraine. This isn't charity for the no. Ukrainians. We're doing this because it's in our interest to do it. Uh, and I won't spell out all the arguments here, but but this this is the fundamental problem with 
explaining to the isolationists, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, that uh, our way of life here at home depends on a strong position internationally. And when we show weakness in Ukraine, it's not just to the Russians, it's to the Chinese, it's to Iran, it's to North Korea, it's to our allies as well who worry about our staying power. You know, I think that's definitely one of the things that that our NATO allies have to be thinking about, too, is, you know, they saw sort of a, a breath of fresh air. They, you know, when Donald Trump went in, it was basically this transactional, like, pay me attitude towards NATO, which ignored 65 plus years of <clears throat> history before that. Of Yes, did, did all the European countries pay as much as we wanted? No, of course not. Um, but was NATO an essential to the global security order? Absolutely. What do you think happens to NATO if you know we get Trump back in office and 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 my belief is he'll just cede Ukraine to Putin immediately. He'll just cut him off. But I, I what, what's your thought on how how that security architecture looks uh, if if we don't help Ukraine and Trump comes back? Well, I, I think Trump will almost certainly try to withdraw from NATO. He almost did it in 2018. Uh, he's not changed his view. Uh, his comments are a little bit opaque at the moment, but I think uh, I know what his his intention would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Trump pressed NATO allies to spend more, it wasn't the same reason that many of us for for many, many years have pressed him to spend more to make NATO stronger. It was to push uh, NATO into a position where he could uh, announce withdrawal. And I think I think that's still his motivation. I think Putin is just waiting for him to come back to do that. And I think withdrawal would be a catastrophic mistake for the United States, it would obviously have immediate negative implications uh, for Ukraine. But, but I think that's what, what uh, Trump has said is he would get Zelensky and Putin in a room together and solve it in 24 hours, which, of course, is ridiculous. Right. Uh, a meeting like that would fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it's not Donald Trump's fault. It never is when failure uh, happens. It has to be somebody else. And I don't think he he would uh, blame his friend Vladimir Putin. So uh, that's just another reason that underlines why we need to get this pending aid to Ukraine so they can stave off uh, the, the kinds of pressure I'm afraid they're about to see. There's two prominent neocons. To me, I mean, in one word, you ready? Lazy. I mean, that's very lazy in offering up an explanation or reason why we should fund Ukraine, why should we further involve ourselves? I mean, it's the old, you know, prophetic, you throw Reagan in there and, you know, that kind of disarms a lot of people of my generation because we hold Reagan in high regard. Um, But, I mean, to me, you know, Rick Wilson, a prominent Republican operative for many, many years, John Bolton, one of the leading voices of American foreign policy, when Republicans are in charge, lazy. I mean, that's just very lazy, but in the spirit of fairness, I wanted you to hear from two prominent Republicans of days gone by who are defending with every ounce of energy they have sending more money to Ukraine. Let's take a break. On the other side, kind of a a, a turning of the page, uh, an introducing of a new chapter in Republican politics, and I'll let you, the listener, decide. I mean, you heard Wilson and Bolton. I mean, both smart guys. I mean, no doubt about it. Both have figured out a way to Make a lot of money in politics in America. But but on the other side of the break, I want you to hear what I hope to be the new iteration, new generation of Republican leadership. Elon is here. Vivek is here. I just want to pull you guys in, see if you have any questions or comments. Well, well, what is the rationale given for sending vast sums of money with no accountability 
to Ukraine. This, how is it in, in any way defensible? What, what is the, or at least what is the defense that they say that, no, this is why we should not have any accounting of how the money is spent? Yeah, Elon, it's Judy, and here's the basic argument. Uh, it's that we have to rush resources to Ukraine immediately or they're liable to fall to Russian aggression. And it's all basically an argument made under the gun that unless you approve this appropriation of resources and weapons, then you will allow Russia to win. So it's a kind of moral blackmail. And, you know, every negative story that comes out of Ukraine, every, you know, item of corruption that David and Mike have just pointed to, these things sort of get brushed under the rug. And if you don't support this, then you want Vladimir Putin to win. And that's the moral framing here. So the other argument that you sometimes hear folks make, Elon, is that the money has been entirely well accounted for. And even some of our Senate Republican colleagues in private and meetings with Obama administration senior, or sorry, Biden administration senior officials will say, well, this has been the most properly accounted for money in the history of any American conflict. It doesn't even pass the smell test. And they'll admit to you that it's a complete lie when you push them on it. But it, it, it becomes this sort of sunk cost fallacy where these guys can't admit that there is corruption. They can't admit that there's no strategy. They can't admit that this isn't going well, because if they admitted that, it would cause too much psychological harm and they'd have to cut bait. Well, well what about even retroactive uh, examination? You know, if, if there's an urgency to the money, the one can understand, OK, the, you know, if, if Ukraine's going to fall apart without saying the money, then there should at least be subsequent accounting and, and accountability for where the funds are sent and prosecution where there is corruption. That's where they fall back on the argument that the money's already properly accounted for. It's, it's a bit of a logical whack-a-mole where you say, you know, and, you know, Mike and I and Josh Hawley and I have had amendments to this effect where you appoint a special investigator general because that similar figure uncovered a ton of corruption that was unknown in Afghanistan. And the argument is you, you need to actually embolden in, in, in an independent accountant, to David's point, to go in there and look at the corruption. The, the, the response you get then is, well, you don't actually need it because the money's already properly accounted for. I, I think in reality what's going on is that folks appreciate that if we did have a fulsome inquiry into corruption in Ukraine, it would completely erode what little public will existed. So you're always sort of dealing with what seem to be bad faith arguments because I think if people dealt with the truth, then the political support for this thing would evaporate. Say, so Elon, this is the Senator Ron Johnson. Can I just add a comment here? Sure. One of the depraved justifications for all this spending is that it's really not going over to Ukraine. It's helping build our industrial base. And so it's creating jobs in your state. And, and I call that a depraved justification because that's exactly what it is. In terms of accountability, I, I just read your the book from Walter Isaacson, and I was very intrigued by your idiot index. And one of the things, yeah. I've, one of the things I pointed out in, uh, to my colleagues and didn't have much of an impact, uh, for example, the, the 155 millimeter shells that uh, Russia can produce about four and a half million of them, we're, we're not even up to a million a year, okay? Russia, can, they're producing those at $600 a shell, which I would say probably still is a pretty high idiot index. In the U.S. or in the West, it costs us five to 6,000 a shell. So, I mean, I've got more to say of different perspective, having been to Ukraine a lot, but I just want to add that in terms of accountability. We spend, and you know this, you, we waste so much money in our military industrial complex, and our colleagues really don't want to dig into it because they're the ones voting for this $880 billion. 
And it's one of the questions I asked too is, well, why, why don't, what do we get for the $880 billion? And if we're going to spend 60 on Ukraine, can't we spend less somewhere else? And that's just not even on the table. Can I ask a follow-up question about the ammunition issue? What we're talking about here is artillery ammunition. The war in Ukraine is, it's a war of attrition in which the main weapon is artillery. And one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are losing, really the main reason, is that they're massively outgunned by the Russians. I've seen reports that the Russians are expending something like 10,000 artillery shells a day, and the Ukrainians have at most about 2,000 shells that they can use per day. This is why the Biden administration sent cluster bombs to Ukraine several months ago, because they said that Ukraine was out of the 155 millimeter artillery ammunition. I guess our, I guess the Pentagon has been trying to increase production of artillery shells, but we still produce nowhere near enough. I think we've basically increased our production. I've seen reports from about 14,000 a month to about 22,000 a month, which is really, that's only a two or three day supply in the Ukraine war. And like you were alluding to, Senator Johnson, the Pentagon, I think they have a goal of 2020 to get the production to about 85,000 shells a, a month. So we're nowhere close to being able to ramp up production to the needs of Ukraine in this war. So I guess my question for you is, even if we do appropriate another 60 billion, you know, we can print more money, but we can't print more artillery shells. That just takes years and years. So how is this money gonna help Ukraine to win a war that again, they're losing because it's an artillery duel? First of all, I think we all have to understand that Vladimir Putin will not lose this war. I state it that way as opposed to Ukraine can't win. Vladimir Putin will not lose. Losing to Vladimir Putin is existential to Vladimir Putin. They have Russia has exactly. four times the population. They have a much larger industrial base. Again, I said Russia can produce 4.5 million of those shells a year. We're not even up to a million a year. The average age of a Ukrainian soldier right now is 43 years old. And David, I heard you uh, quote the Time Magazine article. There are other quotes from some of Top's, some of Zelensky's Top's aides say that even if the U.S. and its allies come through with all the weapons they have pledged, quote, we don't have the men to use them, unquote. So the fact of the matter is, if you're worried about the people of Ukraine, you have to understand that probably about 100,000 of their soldiers have been killed. Has there been about 100,000 Russian conscripts? I take no joy in that. 40,000 civilians. Hundreds of billions of dollars of Ukraine has been destroyed. The only way this war ends is in a settlement. And every day that the war goes on, more Ukrainians, more Russian conscripts die, more civilians die, more of Ukraine gets destroyed, they'll have to be built. So, again, sending $60 billion as added fuel to the flames of a bloody stalemate makes no sense whatsoever. As evil a war criminal as Putin is, he's not going to lose this war. And our colleagues here just aren't willing to accept that reality. And they're living in a fantasy world, thinking that Ukraine can win this thing. They can't. David, I, that's exactly right. I think that, that is an excellent summary of the situation. The, you know, w w when I raised this point, people, have, of course, accused me of being some sort of Putin apology, uh, when in fact, my companies have probably done more to make, I mean, undermine Russia than, any, than anything. I mean, Sp SpaceX has, has taken away two thirds of the Russian launch business. The stuff has uh, overwhelmingly helped Ukraine. 
if you, I mean, it's, it's such an absurd accusation. My concern is exactly what you articulated. If you have an, an extended war of attrition, every day that goes by, there are Ukrainian boys that are, and not even boys anymore, because they're running out of boys. You're, you're losing, Ukraine is losing people every day. And if, you, if you're going to spend lives, it must be for a purpose, and not just, you know, a, a mile here, a mile there. In fact, a mile back, back for the lines aren't moving. So just every day, people die. For what purpose? And as you said, there is no way in hell that Putin is, is going to lose. If he were to back off, he would be assassinated. And for those who want regime change in Russia, they should think about who is the person that could take out Putin? And is that person likely to be a peacenik? Probably not. They're probably going to be even hard, even more hardcore than Putin if they took him out. So, yeah. yeah so well, I was just going to jump in with one, one uh, frame, just point to, oh, that leaves off where you landed there, which is, I think there's an issue with our framing here. I think most of us here, and it is uh, too bad because I think I publicly called and Elon did and others did. I think JD tried to get somebody in here to articulate the best view of the other side. So hopefully for as long as we go, that offer remains open. But with that being said, I think that the framing even here amongst those of us who agree on opposing this bill is a little too charitable, actually, right? Because I think that if there's a good number of Democrats, good number of Republicans who are in favor of more funding to Ukraine, endless funding to Ukraine. But I think those who are generally against it point to what we think of as absence of what we will get from the added investment. Right. That's the argument that goes, OK, the ROI is lower than the acceptable level of return for U.S. taxpayer dollars. And what are we getting in return for the money we're putting in? I actually think that's the wrong framing. I think it is actually net negative for the United States to continue funding this war, irrespective of the financial cost, for some of the reasons Elon just laid out. First of all, if you are shooting for regime change in Russia, which I do believe is the ideological goal here, the net result you're likely to get is actually one that is far worse than Putin, who's leading Russia. Play that out. And the second Absolutely. result, and, and the result that you're getting right now in real time. So regime change, absolutely. I know you're not supposed to say it out loud, but it's worth smoking out. That is the only ultimate stated goal of this project. So you're playing for an outcome that odds are is worse than the one you already have for the United States. But even worse is what you're seeing in the present is a daily strengthening of the military alliance between Russia and China, which when combined is the single greatest increase for the risk of World War III that we've seen in the post-World War II era and is a risk that by definition then increases the risk of the continued existence of the United States should that world war actually, God forbid, transpire. And I'm not saying it's likely to happen. Any risk or any more than minuscule risk of that happening is an unacceptable risk. And we are actively increasing the risk of that worst case outcome, not just through the loss of financial dollars for ourselves, but irrespective of that financial cost, we are contributing to the increase of that risk versus a diplomatic resolution. So then the question is, you know, and I know it's too bad we don't have somebody from the other side here, but we can ask the question of why. You know, we can ask the same question. We can pretend this was a discussion about the border right now and have the same discussion about why do we have an open border on our southern border. And I think that there's a deliberateness to all of this, right? And, and if you miss, I think, the deliberate nature of this, nothing makes sense. But I think if you understand that, I think everything makes sense. The question of, David, right, why are we contributing intentionally without accounting for known corruption, there's a certain deliberate goal here, just as there is with our own southern border right now, right? You could throw your hands in the air and ask, why is it that we are purposefully or why, are we, why is it that we're negligently allowing 
millions of people to cross our own southern border. That doesn't make sense unless you realize that's actually part of the objective. And I think the same thing goes for this Ukraine war. And I think that's why J.D.'s finding in the last 24 hours is so interesting, is that one of the apparently deliberate elements here is that, and I don't think it's even the main one, but I think it's at least a feature that reflects a certain deliberate course of action, is that they're planting the seeds for what does seem to be the third impeachment of Donald Trump. And so, you know, I mean, I'm going to lay out what my actual position is, which probably shouldn't matter because unlike J.D. and Mike Lee and Ron Johnson, who are actually successful in uh, getting elected to the positions they ran for, which I was not, you know, perhaps my view on this should matter less, but I'm going to lay it out anyway. I don't think that our position should be getting border security into the bill as a condition. I think we need to force border security and not send money to Ukraine without commingling a compromise on either of those things. But I think the gambit or the play here that would be interesting, and, and I'd love to hear JD's and Ron's and Mike's reaction to this, is like just, I mean, because you guys have a vote, what, tonight? Is it, JD? Or is it tomorrow night? It's tonight. It's tonight, yeah, right? Yeah. So just in the interest of the super near term, I mean, here's a gambit that you know, I don't favor this as a matter of policy, but I favor this as a matter of negotiation is, you know, the play is here. OK, we had this whole discussion about border funding. And what I found so ridiculous about that last border attached bill is they got to name it a border bill when actually there was three times more funding going to protecting the border of Ukraine than our own southern border. When, in fact, even in our own southern borders case, the real failure is the failure to enforce the existing laws like remain in Mexico, which is still the law of the land. I wonder if the following would be an interesting wrench here, and I doubt the other side would go for it, but it'd be interesting to smoke out what the intentions are, what the deliberate nature of all of this is. It's to say, okay, here's the border deal we want, not even more border funding. A precondition for passing this is a commitment from the Biden administration to enforce existing laws, including remain in Mexico, tangible evidence as table stakes for talking about any further funding to Ukraine. And then on the funding to Ukraine, there's, it's metered out over time, and it is completely discretionary at the level of the U.S. commander-in-chief, the U.S. president, such that they know that if it's metered out over time, right, it's not going to go out, and President Trump is able to then be at the table to negotiate an end to this, he can use the withholding of— Okay, let's stop there for a second. I mean, I don't want to lose flow with the show. I mean, it, we're still wake up, Carolina. I just think—I mean, very often— the non-interventionist, non-globalist Trump movement gets discredited by not being serious. I mean, it, it, there's no intellectual basis here. There's no underpinning. There's no thoughtfulness. This is so much different than Trump's argument. I mean, Trump's argument is, I'm the wrecking ball. Give me a shot. There, there's, there, there's a weird beauty to that. But, but if the wrecking ball successfully supplants the status quo, it, 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 it opens up government to, it forces government to consider different thoughts, different perspectives. And I mean, you've heard um, Smith and or Wilson and Bolton. I mean, you heard them to me, very lazy. I mean, very nonchalant. Uh, it's all Trump's fault. Trump's bad. Trump's bad. Trump's bad. I mean, you know what Reagan did? You know what we do? You know what Reagan did? You know what we do? You know what Reagan did? You know what we do? And you heard 14 minutes and 28 seconds. In my humble opinion, some of the most intellectually curious conversation I've ever heard on whether or not to spend money or more money 
to Ukraine. I want to come back. You got something else? I was just going to make sure people know the voices we were listening to. That was a podcast, and there at the end it was Vivek Ramaswamy, and we had heard, heard Elon Musk, and then we have three senators, uh, Mike Lee, J.D. Vance, and Ron Johnson. And David Sachs. It's, and he's hosting he's the podcast. He's hosting the po- all-in podcast with, uh, with David Sachs. Um, three, well, I mean, uh, two. Is J.D. a tech entrepreneur? And I, I mean, I know Vivek. Well, I mean, anyway, let, let's come back and um, – and we'll kind of continue down that road together. Back at a few. 843-661-0937. I gave you fair warning. I told you this morning that in the 7 o'clock hour, we were going to play kind of some bits of other people discussing Ukrainian funding or not. Um, and I think the point I'm trying to make, Josh, is because we discussed this yesterday, you're not heavily influenced by the Cold War. Right. I mean, Reagan's not one of your heroes. I mean, I think you respect Reagan and the role he played in the American presidency or the American history as as a former president, but you're not – you don't hold Reagan as a revered political figure. Rev and I would probably – I mean, if you forced Rev and I to say um, outside of Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Lincoln, who was the greatest American president, Rev and I would probably say – I don't want to speak for him – Truman or Reagan. I mean, they, they very consequential leaders. Um, the buck stops here. I mean, that's not Reagan. I mean, anyway, you know where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. Uh, peace through strength. They were um, dynamic, personal, uh, political figures. Truman, not so much. Underestimated would be his um, claim to fame. But but Reagan, a change agent. Tear down this wall. Yeah, and then kind of, a, I mean, as much as you could be in that period of time, a revolutionary. Um, the Reagan Revolution is still a, a phrase coined by many who grew up in that period of time. The point I try to make is the majority of Americans, and I'm talking about independents by and large, have been convinced that the Trump voters are a bunch of hayseed hellraisers who don't understand what they're talking about. Fair enough. Guess what? Every political party, every candidate has hayseed hellraisers as part of their voting base. I mean, nobody has a, a, a monopoly on, you know, the hayseeds or the hellraisers or, you know, those extremists who are angry about everything under the sun. But, but my point has been, You've got, and, and I think they made it clear, we invited somebody to come on and discuss the other side of the debate. We want somebody to come on with these um, tech entrepreneurs and Senators Lee, Vance, and Johnson, and apparently couldn't find anybody to come on. Uh, now, John Bolton, once again, one of the most uh, celebrated foreign policy experts of the post-Reagan era. Is that fair, Rip? I mean, in conservative circles, historically, John Bolton is held in high regard. I mean, he's one of the most thoughtful foreign policy experts. I mean, he worked for Trump. I mean, somebody inside the bubble told Donald Trump, Bolton's a a safe choice. I mean, you don't know much about foreign policy. You've been a business guy. I mean, you think foreign policy is building a golf course in in Scotland. That's not foreign policy. I mean, they're they're chits and they're bartering and there's negotiations and it's a big old complicated world, Donald, and it's a lot more complicated than building a golf course in, in, in Dubai. And Bolton was his choice. That was disappointing to me, but I understood it. I understood it. Hey, let's have an old hand with some gray hair taking care of these very 
serious issues. So my point is being, I'm not trying to convince you to believe one thing or another. I'm about to jump out the seat. Uh, this took a big swig of Celsius. Um, <laughs> spitting everywhere. Anyway, I'm not trying to convince you to believe one thing or another. You have every right. You know this. I'm not granting you the right to believe what you think. You are entitled to believe what you believe about border security, about foreign uh, funding of wars. The point I tried to make is the, the conventional wisdom and the status quo are, are losing its grip because the majority of you, whether you'll admit it or not, heard Bolton and Wilson and you thought, wow, that's lazy. Trump's bad. The mention of Reagan. I mean, you gain some favor, Josh, when you do that. I mean, when Bolton and Wilson say, well, I mean, you and I grew up in the era of Reagan. I mean, he's basically saying neoconservatism is what he's arguing. But there's no thoughtfulness there. I mean, it's basically the Hitler argument that America better be strong or Putin will march across Europe. That's lazy. I mean, that's extremely lazy to me. And then you flip the script and go to younger generation of leadership. And I'm talking about Mike Lee, Ramaswamy, uh, J.D. Vance to me is most impressive. I keep going back to Vance. I mean, Vance is, to me, the most impressive young thinker of the America First political movement. Um, and then you've got David Sachs, Elon Musk, and Vivek Ramaswamy. And Ramaswamy's kind of half pregnant with politics. I mean, you know, you, you often wonder when Elon's talking to Vivek, does he consider Vivek a former presidential candidate or a tech entrepreneur? I mean, I think Elon, I mean, you know how that's, I mean, I don't run in that circle, obviously, but those tech entrepreneurs that graduated from Stanford, I mean, they, I'm telling you guys, they have a little bit of anarchy in their blood. I mean, you hear it. You, you, you sense this contrarian, this, this, this obvious contrarian nature. But you know what they are, Josh? They're extremely bright. They're extremely smart. And by and large, the, the private sector voices on that podcast are financially liberated. They're not dependent upon, well, I mean, Elon would be a complicated case, right? Tesla, EVs, subsidies, SpaceX. I mean, the biggest contract he has is with the U.S. federal government. But, but he's fearless in the way he addresses some of these issues. Let's go back. I mean, I want to pick it up where we left off. I don't want to listen to it in its entirety, but um, let's take this until the top of the hour, and then we'll take our long, hard break. Let's resume listening to what I consider one of the most intellectually stimulating conversations America firsters are having about not sending additional funds to Ukraine. Those funds as one of the levers in what will be a complex negotiation. To be clear, I'm dead set opposed to giving another dime to Ukraine. I think we need a peaceful resolution right now. But pragmatically speaking, I think that's, I think, the way we bring the border into this is less about the token funding to the border, which really I think is likely to go to not be enforced anyway. If the current administration is not enforcing the existing laws on the books, I think that behooves us to wonder whether they're going to enforce a new law that we put on the books. To say that's table stakes for having the discussion is seeing at least existing enforcement of the border laws of our own border. And if we are going to fund Ukraine, and J.D., this is the piece that I think maybe smokes out the gem of a finding that you your team or you found in the last couple of days, 
is to say that we're going to meter this out. And if there is a new president that is going to negotiate peace in Ukraine, as we think actually needs to happen, then we're going to actually make this discretionary of that president to actually do so. What do you think? Vivek, this is very similar. This is Mike Lee. Uh, this is very similar to what all Republican senators agreed to do months ago. We're talking like three months ago was to, to say we're not going to give another dime to Ukraine until at a minimum such time. We shouldn't even consider it until such time as the president's enforcing existing laws already on the books that already give him the power to enforce the border, just as they did empower Donald Trump to do it. And he used it to enforce the border. That's what we committed to three months ago. We were then told that we would see the, a bill that was being negotiated as soon as it was ready. That took three or four months to negotiate. We were demanding to see language the entire time. It was kept from us. We saw it for the first time Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern time. It was woefully deficient. In fact, it didn't even match the description of what we had asked to do to begin with. It didn't do anything to harness the fervor in favor of Ukraine aid to leverage that to put us in a position where Biden was forced to secure the border. And so we demanded that it do so before we proceed. What's tragic here, Vivek, is that although every single Republican senator agreed to that and every single Republican senator opposed cloture on the motion to proceed to this a couple months ago, with that commitment under, in mind that we made to each other and to our voters, team of our Senate Republican colleagues have now backed away from that and have supported cloture at various stages of this bill, supporting this bill without anything, without any commitment, without any promise, without any leverage over the president, without conditioning the release of any Ukraine funding on this, even though a majority of our conference supported that and expressed that. Apparently, they were directed by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell not to even bring this up in the conversations, a fact that we re learned only recently. This is exactly why we've got to get out of this. This is exactly why we have to oppose cloture on this and we have to defeat this. So we look at the incentives. But why did these guys do it? Fidelity does matter more than the facts. And the internal reward from committee chairs and Pentagon elites to fill the void after Afghanistan this is fertilizer for the ego of a precious few around here. Look, we don't say no anymore, in part because we've just taken to this nasty habit of printing money like there's no tomorrow. And it's yes to the foolish and yes to the frenzied, yes to the blind. We need to reset and not a minute too soon. We need senators to become aware of and willing to exercise yet again their privileges, their prerogatives under the Senate rules. I've been working on a project to inform them of that, and I'd love to talk about that on another occasion. But look, Mike, no Mike, should be I'm the just, default. No is absolutely the position, but I think if we were to just smoke out and isolate this sort of new issue, which I find pretty fascinating in the last day, that you know, JD, that memo that JD put out, what, what do you think would be the response? I mean, I guess you guys have time to try it. You're in a position to say, all right, if the funding is, if, if, if no, our position is we think a peace deal needs to be negotiated now, but that's up to the U.S. president, and that isn't happening. We are hopefully going to have a new U.S. president in about 11 months. All right, so that funding is sufficiently metered out that most of it doesn't go out the door in the next 11 months. And if the next U.S. president is at the table, then at least he has the flexibility to use this as a lever. What do you think would happen? Do you think that those colleagues would say, oh, this urgent funding for Ukraine is so important to achieve our goals, which I happen to disagree with, but they would say it's so important to achieve our goals that we're going to say yes, and that, yes, that's that important that even if Donald Trump can revisit this when he's the next president, he has the total discretion to do that, make it discretionary rather than non-discretionary. Yeah. What would they say? Yeah, 
you know, no, we're not going to go for that. Yeah, the, the issue of the thing. And they receive cues to do it. As long as they have an open opportunity to do this at a lower price, as long as they don't have to jump through those hurdles, the Democrats are never going to negotiate on that. And as long as we've got 18 Republicans or more than 10 in the current climate on this bill, then we're never going to get to that moment because they can get what they want more cheaply from them. And that's yeah. why I, there's a that what these guys are doing. There's both a procedural answer and a substantive answer to your question. To Mike's point, the procedural answer is that you can't even force the debate that you're suggesting unless some of these 18 Republicans flip and join with the majority of the conference. So long as they're willing to end debate with the Democrats, which is what tonight's vote is, you don't even get an opportunity to present this to the conference to force amendment votes and so forth. So really, this is why the vote tonight is so important, is you're just trying to give some space to breathe for the argument that we're making. Now, substantively, do I think they accept the argument? I actually don't think that they do, Vivek, and the, the reason is unfortunately quite simple. There is a subset of the Republican conference that is terrified that Donald Trump actually means yes. what he says, and that when he is elected president in January of 2025, and we discussed earlier today a CBS poll that contradicts every gut instinct I have. I mean, I said last week that my instinct, my gut, my political abilities, I mean, they're, they're, I, I'm, I'm not, I've never run a campaign in an analytical fashion. Every, everything I did as a candidate was based on, I don't know, a sense that I had. Hey, you know, um, this is what people are thinking about. This is what people are considering this is what people's priorities are uh, a little bit gi joe with the kung fu grip it's never been academic in nature it's never been scholarly in my approach my instinct that same instinct tells me that nikki's going to be closer to trump in in south carolina than most believe but then there's this poll <laughs> the cbs poll says 65 30 donald trump that that creates an insecurity it's like, wow, man, is my instinct lying? Am I getting old? Am I slipping? Am, am I losing touch with what I thought was one of my political skills and abilities? My instinct says that we are at a very pivotal moment in the America First movement. I don't have a flow chart. I don't have a Venn diagram. But something tells me that the Ukrainian debate is, is a central fork in the road that leads us, Josh, one way to what I'll say, let's say boomer conservatism. I mean, you stuck your head in the door a second ago and said, yeah, the baby boomers. I mean, I looked on Twitter a second ago, and there are a lot of neocons posting things that Reagan and Nixon and some of the other, the heroes of days gone by. Something tells me that, that there's, there's something brewing right now in this civil war within the Republican Party and it's it's kind of I mean it's boomer neoconservatism, it's the Romney McConnell wing of the party, and what we just heard from JD Vance, Mike Lee, Vivek Ramaswamy, Elon Musk, um, that, that's just, I don't know I mean I don't have a data I mean I don't have a poll that says wow right now in America, the Republican Party is beginning to really consider this fork in a road, and one leads to boomer conservatism. And one leads to a new path forward. But I believe that. And that's why I thought it was important that you heard from Wilson and Bolton. And what did they do, guys? I mean, to me, it was lazy reflection. 
It was very lazy, and it was very reflective. And do we believe we grow the grand old party by offering up uh, kind of kind of a romantic tale of boomer neoconservatism? No, no. I mean, you got to blaze a path forward. the The craziness of this, and I told Rev during the break, you heard from Elon Musk, David Sachs, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, J.D. Vance, Mike Lee, and uh, Senator Johnson, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Every one of those, if tested in an IQ test, would score better than average. I mean, I think we all accept. Yeah, th- those are really smart guys kicking the can about Ukrainian funding. They're talking about artillery and what it costs to make a bomb here and what it costs to make a bomb in Russia, what it costs to, to, to make weapons here, what it costs to make Russia. And I think one of the most interesting things said was when, when Johnson said, so we're spending $880 billion a year in our military and defense budget. We can't take $60 billion out of that and apply toward Ukraine? No. No. Can't do that. Why? Boomer neoconservatism. But I mean, they didn't say because of boomer neoconservatism. But the absurdity that we're spending $880 billion on our defense spending, and I'm not saying what our number should be. I don't have any idea what the number should be. It doesn't need to be $880 billion, and there's so much fat in that military budget. The, the other thing that Ramaswamy said, and he kind of gave J.D. Vance a lot of credit for this, none of this is accidental. He's talking about the southern border. He's talking about Ukrainian funding. And J.D. Vance says, basically, and Vivek Ramaswamy kind of gave J.D. a lot of credit for finding something in the legislation that would create a lot of problems if Trump got elected and refused to allocate or appropriate the already committed dollars. But, 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 but J.D. Vance is finding out, and he's smart enough to do the work, he's finding out that none of this is accidental. I mean, the situation on our southern border could be addressed if there was a willingness to address it. Um, the members of the Republican Party that voted supporting funding for Ukraine, they know Ukraine can't win the war. I mean, they're going to run out of people. One of the, more, one of the most interesting, I made a note, someone in the conversation said, okay, let's say that we spend $60 billion or we send $60 billion worth of weaponry. They don't have the men to use it. I mean, they're running out of human beings. It's a meat grinder. And calling it a meat grinder and not wanting people's lives to be ended prematurely and a nation to be completely and totally destroyed. I mean, remember a year ago, a year and a half, uh, probably a little better than a year, somewhere between a year and a year and a half ago, we found out that Israel tried to broker a peace deal. Who got in the way? The good old U.S. of A. I mean, Israel had made some gains. Hey, Russia thinks this is their land. You think it's your land. A lot of people are getting killed. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any reasonable compromise lying. I mean, why don't we just kind of work something? I'm not defending what Russia did. But either the world declares war on Russia or Ukraine loses. I mean, if, if NATO today passed a, a, a proclamation declaring war on Russia, we'd probably win. I mean, if, if every NATO member committed every military asset they have at their avail, we'd probably defeat Russia. But is it worth that? And, and Wilson and Bolton 
didn't offer up much of a reason to continue to make this enormous investment of taxpayer dollars in Ukraine. And I thought the the Trump crowd, let's refer to these as the, the Trump crowd, made far more intellectual points than Wilson and Bolton's lazy articulation. And it was basically, well, I mean, we remember Reagan, don't we? Boomer neoconservatism. That's a great way to grow the Republican Party into Josh. Aren't you really enthusiastic being a part of that real looking back in history um, without looking ahead? Hell no. <laughs> which I want to, <clears throat> I don't remember which one said it, but when they said uh, Ukraine has run out of boys. I mean, think about what well, I mean. The average soldier at the beginning of the war was around 26. The average soldier today is 43. You know why? Because they've killed all the 26-year-olds. And there's no end in sight. And there's no accountability. And a year ago, Israel saw this. A year and a half ago, Israel saw this and said, man, I mean, this is a meat grinder. I mean, there's so many lives lost. For what? And, and I'd love to believe, and, and I understand I understand some of the 60, 65, 70-year-old senators have such a worldview. And, and you're not, what does the old say, can't teach, don't, can't teach, new dog, uh, can't teach old dogs new tricks. I mean, I get that. So, so I'll, 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 I'll give them some, some leeway. But they decided, as the more cerebral body of Congress, they decided that they couldn't get Ukrainian funding when it was attached to border security. So we decided, they decided, why don't we do a standalone bill? And the first standalone bill was not to secure the border. The first standalone bill was to rush $95 billion out of the door that we don't have. I mean, this money will be printed. I mean, this will be debt issued, bought by the Fed. I mean, we don't have an extra $95 billion laying around. I mean, we're spending a trillion a year we don't have. Yeah, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We just can't afford to. Someone said, why can't we secure the border and focus on Ukraine and some of the geopolitics? Because we don't have enough money. We've been so financially irresponsible, fiscally irresponsible. Yeah, we can walk and chew gum. If somebody would buy us the gum. I mean, there's got to be some financial considerations here. I mean, $95 billion, that's one-tenth of a trillion well, that's one one-hundredth of a trillion, right? Not to be one-tenth, but a thousand billion, one hundred. So that'd be one-tenth of one trillion dollars that we don't have. None of it is spent on the American citizenry. None. Let's go to the phone. Scott in Florence. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, great conversation, Ken. Uh, two things you touched on, Nikki Haley. I kind of stumbled on your same thinking with Nikki Haley um, when I realized that only 2% of the Democratic uh, uh, voters actually participated in the primary, giving Joe his 96%. I was like, why are they doing that? And I agree with you, so don't give up on that theory. I, I don't trust that CBS poll because, you know, anymore polls aren't polls. They're, you know, mechanisms that the you know, major uh, legacy media uses to move the public opinion needle you'd have to dig down in that pulse so i'm not giving up on your theory 
I don't think you should either about Nikki Haley being closer to Trump. I don't think it's going to be 35 points. Um, the only argument I have against that is all the people who talk funny like me who have moved down here. They're all the middle class, you know, upper blue collar, lower white collar worker from, you know, the northeast and the middle Atlantic. So, you know, they are big Trump people. They identify with that guy with the funny talking. And so um, but I still think you're on to something. Number one. Number two, as far as Ukraine. I think the salient point about Ukraine, and you know, I, I don't think you touched on it, you might have earlier this morning, is A, what's our objective? A, you know, they haven't stated that properly. Um, and B, where's the accounting? We haven't seen that. And if we're spending money willy nilly, you know, in the form of $100 billion in another country, it just doesn't make sense. And for us as people on the right side of the ledger sheet, Politically, not to enumerate that, you know, in the public uh, space just seems insane to me and that we're arguing amongst ourselves. So maybe you could touch on that on the, the number one. What's our objective? Has anyone clearly outlined what our objective? Because it seems to be a moving target. And two, is there any accounting of where that money's going? I'm just wondering where Zelensky's big dasha is on the Black Sea, you know, because, you know, he's getting rich just like Putin's getting rich. So, um, yeah, there you go. And uh, thanks. You guys are doing great. And I so see you now. Thank you. Appreciate that. What they've done, they've sold boomer neoconservatism without explaining themselves. I think the, the, the American taxpayer, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, deserve an explanation. Bolton didn't give an explanation. Wilson is not required to give an explanation. Bolton should know up and down the reason we're, we're sending money to Ukraine, what the strategy is, what the objectives are, what the timeline is expected to be. I mean, I understand it's war. You don't hit every marker. I get that. But nobody has given any explanation about what America's objective or end games are except Putin's bad. Okay, we can spend $100 trillion. Guess what? Putin's bad. Russia is an expansionist nation. I've got no idea what, to what degree of the former Soviet Union still exist in Russia. Explain that to us. I mean, if you believe that Russia is trying to put the band back together, explain to the American people, the American taxpayer, why you believe that. Nobody's done that. I mean, it, to me, it's been lazy, reflective. That's what they've done. Remember the days of... Stalin and Lenin. Not don't remember the days of Stalin and Lenin. I remember the days of Gorbachev and Reagan. I mean, I remember that. But but it's just like okay, let's 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 convince these people that Putin's trying to get the band back together. Let's not offer any specificity. Let's not offer any um, where your money's going, what it's doing, what we're trying to accomplish. Let's just send money to Ukraine. I mean, I, I just can't imagine an American taxpayer being that naive. But they are. They absolutely are. Take a break. Back in a few. If I'm the valedictorian of common sense or not, I pronounced yesterday to the masses that I thought, well, last week, that I thought Nikki Haley would be closer in South Carolina than Donald Trump. The two most recent polls have Trump up 35 and 36. So maybe I get my valedictorian privileges revoked <laughs> from the University of Common we Sense. We shall see. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us. He's a daily feature 
in the last week, week and a half. And there's a reason, Josh. He's really good at what he does. Ryan, thank you for joining us again this morning. Um, the Senate and the foreign aid bill um, right. did not include border provisions. What's the latest? Well, first of all, thanks for the kind words. Now, the latest is is that I have learned through a source that Speaker Johnson has requested multiple times since January to meet one-on-one with President Biden to discuss topics that would include border security. Now, we don't know what the specifics of that meeting would include or if President Biden is interested in having that meeting, but there could this could be an opening for maybe House Republicans to negotiate a border bill similar to the one that uh, senators tried to pass but ultimately failed, and Republicans could see if they can get a better border bill out of this, and then maybe that could lead to foreign aid coming with it. Ryan, I'm going to let you into the head of a former politician. If I were in the Senate, I would roll the dice a little bit because I don't run but every six years. But if I'm in the House, there's no way I vote for a Ukrainian funding bill without border security. I can't do it. I'm running every two years. I don't give my voters a chance to forgive me. Does that make sense? Well, it looks like, you know, it, this bill is just going to be dead until until something on border is reached. You know, Republicans have made it very clear they're not going to support this. Uh, there might be some who would vote for it if it was brought to the House floor. But Speaker Johnson just simply is not going to bring this to the House floor just based off of the comments that he's made so far. Now, one thing that could be an option is Democrats are considering what's called a discharge petition, which essentially, if they get enough Republican support on this and they get as much Democrat support as possible, they could bring this to the floor without Speaker Johnson or Majority Leader Steve Scalise's blessing, and then they could have a vote on it. But there's a problem there, and that's that you have progressive Democrats who have issues with the Israel aid that's attached to this package. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the progressive Democrat from New York, said straight up to me yesterday that this is a non-starter because it lacks the checks on Benjamin Netanyahu. That's what, how she puts it. So uh, if her and a number of other progressive Democrats are going to come out against this bill, uh, that's going to make it even harder for this thing to pass. Ryan, you mentioned Speaker Johnson. They had a second bite of the apple, so to speak, in impeaching uh, Mayorkas. It did prevail yesterday. I got to believe as DOA, as borders, excuse me, uh, Ukrainian funding is in the house, the Mayorkas impeachment headed to the Senate. There's no chance it flies over there, right? It's not going to, but but Republicans are getting some positives out of what came out yesterday, and that's that the Senate does plan, based off of Leader Schumer's office uh, statement, uh, that to hold an impeachment trial. So, you know, impeachment managers will still make the case to the Senate to impeach Secretary Mayorkas, but, you know, the chances of it passing are still extremely slim right now. Very well explained. Ron, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You too, sir. Have a good one. I'll tell you, man, Ryan is really uh, – done us a good solid i mean he has he's here uh i mean he's on the list every day and they've got him assigned to these subjects that we're keenly interested in border security uh immigration ukraine uh i mean it's just it, 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 he's he's been you ready he's been a uh, a media powerhouse <laughs> in support of our feeble attempt at radio I, I remember when he first you know came up on the scene and we had him on the show and he has he really sounded nervous the first time I, or two I, or I three he did. and then he, he got real confident in himself and he's done us a solid day after day after day let's go to the phone daphne and dylan good morning good morning guys uh the 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 ukrainian bill does anyone like me find it strange that they call 
Trump a Putin supporter and a Hitler supporter when it was Obama who allowed Russia to take two parcels of land from Ukraine, and they never said one word about it. They allowed the uranium rights here in America to be given to Russia and never said a word about it. But if uh, Donald Trump comes up and says, if you people don't pay your part, it's your little red wagon, and I'm paraphrasing, when Russia marches over you. And that's what he said to NATO before when they wouldn't pony up. Why should America kill their taxpayers with the funding for you when you're supposed to be trying to help yourself? Now, on the border bill and the Ukrainian bill, the Ukrainian bill, Mike Lee and J.D. Vance have been on radio this, this week talking about how Ukraine spent their money, our money, to prop up their social security system and are still paying all their government officials from money we're funding to them. And that, that in fact, if those are passed, the Ukrainian bill would impeach Trump if he attempted to cut any of that funding out and they also said that the border bill was a full-fledged uh, stamp of approval on the continued invasion, and Trump wouldn't be able to stop that either. So does that let you know that whether or not that when they throw money at different things, that if they give $10 billion to this nation or... 60 billion to that nation are there five billion coming back to line their pockets thank you thank you daphne appreciate that 843-661-0937 is our number someone else on the phone let's get there brian good morning you're on the air good morning uh this morning i saw some pretty shocking video that the blaze put out on their youtube channel that showed uh some camera angles from the actual bombs that were planted in J6 in the Democratic uh, Policy Building. Have you seen that yet? I have not. I've heard the stories. I've read as much as I can, but I've not seen any video. No, sir. It is shocking. They literally have a camera that doesn't move for months. The day the bombs planted, the camera mysteriously turns 180 degrees away from the target. The same thing happens with a camera down the street that was stationary for months and right prior to the bomb being placed it once again does this magic trick and goes backwards 180 degrees uh, it, that was that was completely controlled by man they were they intended to have that they knew it was going to happen and they moved the camera so nobody could see it that was a corrupt operation on j6 i don't care what anybody says thank you appreciate that 843-661-0937 okay josh Take center stage. You ready? Mercedes to the main stage. Josh, take <laughs> take center stage here. You're, I've heard means. that. Yeah, I don't know. I what mean, I've means. never heard that. Really, <laughs> I've heard, I've heard of that. There you go. I've heard of that. Never heard that. Um, Josh, so is it hypocritical for us as Republicans to believe it's best to look forward 
and look at boomer neoconservatism differently than the 2020 election and J6. Aren't they all looking back? I mean, aren't they all lazy and reflective? Yeah, I think so. Okay, but you look at them differently. I mean, you've, you've talked more about J6 and the 2020 election. I mean, I'm offering, I'm not offering an olive branch. It's, it's kind of a, it's a passing of the baton from one generation to another. I'll accept that I was misled. I'll accept that I was gullible. I'll accept full responsibility for being a boomer neoconservative far longer than an intelligent man should be. Uh, intelligent man, take that back. A, a semi-intelligent. There you go. That's fair. A, I will admit, and, and, I, and I'll confess, that I was a boomer neoconservative for longer than any semi-intelligent human being should be one. And I'll admit that some of it was laziness. It was easy for me to believe that, you know, when these trouble spots happened around the world, America, you know, American exceptionalism had to engage, had to prevail, had to direct all these countries' paths because ultimately they don't know what's best for them. I mean, they don't know it, but they need to embrace the American way. So I'll, I'll level with you. I'll admit that, that, that I was wrong. I'm a convert. I mean, I don't think I'm by myself. I think there are many, many, many people like me. Maybe we need to have a, a collective confessional. Maybe we need to have an altar that all of us boomers can get together and say, hey, please forgive us. I mean, we were misled. We bought into the Bush Doctrine. We, we bought into the war in Iraq. We, we bought into all this, you know, Middle East engagement we did. We bought into all the military buildups that have happened, you know, to stop China from being what we think they're going to be in Russia from what, you know, we think Russia is going to be. That doesn't mean I'm an isolationist. It means that I've accepted responsibility for being a part of a political movement and ideology that has been terribly <sighs> unsuccessful. Unsuccessful. I mean, that, that would be the best word. But, but Josh, when I say that, don't, don't some of the younger Republicans have to stop looking back to J6 and 2020? I mean, if we're going to be a forward-looking political party and we're going to get excited about people like J.D. Vance and, and Josh Hawley and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and, you know, um, Elon Musk is not a Republican, but he does kind of offer a a disruptive sort of personality. But but aren't we being hypocritical when we start talking about J6? We start talking about the 2020 election, but we don't want to talk about boomer neoconservatism. Yeah, I get what you're getting at. Um, but here's what I where I would disagree is I don't think it's contradictory when when it's relevant. So I think that when when you hear someone like John Bolton say, "Oh, we got to get back to this this Reagan form of politics," it's not the 1980s anymore, and and the demographics alone, you know, it's it's not the same. It's not really comparable. And I agree with you on J six. I I don't think proving that it was like a government, you know, led FBI psyop or whatever. I don't think that matters. I do think the election somewhat matters because if it was rigged, if they did cheat. What is being done to ensure they can't do that again? Fair enough. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Some of these debates you stumble on. I mean, there's always an intent. I mean, I've got some stories here, and I've got some some notes made to myself. But one of the debates that I think we've we've stumbled on, I think Josh adds a great deal to this particular debate, 
I mean, I've kind of coined the phrase boomer neoconservatism. I mean, I don't know what that means. Baby boomers being indoctrinated to believe by a mystical political leader that this is the way forward forever. And nothing's forever. And I think as we begin to kind of digest where we are, um, understand what our future is, there's no way you can be a parent and not consider the nation your kids will grow up in. We were talking a second ago about the 80s. And I've told both my boys this, and I think they I think they've come around. They were very dismissive, a little bit like Josh, a little snarky. Now, now I don't think it was intentionally insulting, but it was. I, I took it as, whoa, okay. Um, those are my boys. They never they never, you know, say bad things about me when they need things, but when they don't, then they, you know, kind of criticize the old man and his views <laughs> and how outdated and antiquated they are um until they need something, you know, and then that's cool. You know that's cool that again. But but we're, we're talking about the 80s. And, I mean, we talk about the music a lot. The music of the late 70s and early 80s was the best music ever. Uh, we lived during that period of time, Rev. But, but I do believe that we are today at this crossroads. Once again, gut, instinct, no analytics. Th- this crossroads or this fork in the road. And one leads to conversion. <laughs> And, and liberation and a con- full confessional, and the other is so stubborn that, that you've got to, you know, I've, I have believed this all my life. There's no way I can be convinced it's not right. you got a lot of water under that bridge. You've got a lot invested in that belief. And I've told my boys, I just told Josh, I've got to learn to respect that they didn't grow up in the Cold War. They didn't grow up, you know, um, my dad talking about neoconservatism while I'm listening to a flock of seagulls. I mean, that would have been, okay, there, there's the generational difference there. But, but, I, but Josh and his generation have to respect equally that we did. I mean, we did. When, when, when Rev and I struggle with the Reagan legacy and the Cold War and the military buildup, and celebrating H.W. Bush as a decorated military veteran, and then John McCain's service to country. I mean, that, that, that were, I mean we, were, we admired that. I think we should still admire that and respect that. But, but I do believe that Rev, me, and however many boomers there are, are, are at a very pivotal place in our political beliefs. Um, we believed something all of our lives. And we kind of, whether we liked to admit it or not, Rev, we trusted in things that probably weren't trustworthy. And, and all of a sudden, Josh is going, I don't get it. My kids are going, I don't get it. I mean, and wh- wh- why are we having, I mean, wh- why would 18 Republicans vote with the Democrats to send more money to Ukraine? But, but I think that that period of time was so impactful in, in all of our lives. The Republican Party can't win elections with boomers. And boomers alone. Republicans can't win elections with millennials and millennials alone. And there has to be some saying grace. And, and I think that's what we're in the process of doing. And I do believe, and this is why I got a little bit inspired by um, the previous ah, podcast that we, that we um, played over the air. There, there was a, to me, kind of a, I mean, an unspoken respect that some of the younger guys had for the Republicans who 
felt compelled to vote with the Democrats to. I don't think the Republicans were voting with the Democrats. I think the Republicans were voting nostalgically. I think historically the Mitt Romneys and, and, and John Cornyn's of the world, I think they believe they still owe it to that worldview, that, that, that sensibility. That, that, I don't know. I'm, it's, it's so a part of who they are. Uh, I don't know when Cornyn got to Washington, but I mean, some of the McConnell got their win in 84. Somebody's I mean, been there 40 years. I mean, if, if you get to Washington in 84 as an impressionable young senator, I mean, guess what 84 is, guys? I mean, that's the Midwest, that's halftime of the Reagan Revolution. I mean, Reagan runs in 80 wins, runs in 84 wins. I mean, that's the high water mark of the Reagan Revolution, which, which was very neoconservative in nature. I mean, there was a big military buildup. I'm not saying that the time and place didn't call for that. But, but I think that time and that place has to be revisited. And how do we, how do we become more geopolitically effective without spending a trillion dollars a year and intervening in places that I think the last 40 years have shown very questionably whether they're in our national security or not. Are we more secure for what we did? Well, I mean, let's start here. Is America a safer place because we won the Cold War? Yes. After that, it's very questionable. It's very argumentative. As it relates to Ukraine funding, one of our complaints on our side, and we heard it during those podcast excerpts you played earlier in the 7 o'clock hour, um, my question is this. We complain that there's no accountability and no stated goal. If there were, if we could if we had a commander in chief that would state a clear and concise goal and there was accountability that our senators and, and house members were comfortable with, um, could your mind be changed? Hold on to that. Let's take a break. That's a good question. Fair question. Very fair question. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number. Rev asked an interesting an interesting question in the last hour. Um, could those of us who have converted from neoconservatism to this um this inner non-interventionist mindset, could we be convinced that Ukraine is a wise investment? I mean, I think it's stupid to say no. I mean, I think it's very closed-minded. I think it's shallow to say no. I under no condition, under no circumstance will I ever, you know, agree. Just I mean, I've already made my mind up. That's as dumb as letting the 80s shape your foreign policy perspectives. Um, I think you've got to consider the financial situation our nation finds itself in. I would be more inclined to figure out a way to get $60 billion. I mean, let's, let's say that we were convinced. Let's say somebody came in this studio, very, very, very honest, very, very, very able, and they convinced Rev and I that, yes, I'm an American security is at risk, and we've got some intel about Putin that we've not shared with the general public until now. And, and you and I said, okay, I mean, I get it. Let, let's do what we got to do there. I'm, I'm, I'm changed. That's still $60 billion, $95 billion on the bill, uh, Israel, Indo-Pacific, um, humanitarian aid that we don't have. But I mean, that's still $100 yeah. billion. There's, dollars. there's that little detail. Sure. I mean, and, and we tend to say, well, I mean, I saw a lot on Twitter yesterday. Well, I mean, so, so America is in such decline that it can't walk and chew gum at the same time. We can't focus on border security and funding for Ukraine. I mean, I'd like to believe we're capable 
But but at what point in time does the tab matter? I mean, if I go to a restaurant and I order lobster and I order Dom Perignon and I order this and I order that, I mean, at some point in time, don't I have to consider, wow, this is going to be an expensive meal. I mean, I'd really like that cheesecake, but I've run up a bill of, you know, a grand. And, I mean, it, we act like that doesn't matter. The principle of border security, the principle of, uh, of Ukrainian freedom, the principle of stopping Putin from marching across Western Europe. But doesn't that principle have to be considered along with the financial consequence? I mean, don't we? I'm thinking about Josh more now than anything. Because rest assured, guys, my world is not going to be fundamentally reshaped by our federal debt. Josh and my three kids could be. I mean, their, their, their existence, their future, their, their, their prosperity, their, their human advancement. I mean, it could be absolutely shaped by how much debt we continue to, to, um, to take on. And, I mean, we saw a little bit of that yesterday in the stock market. We, we, could, we could spend a week talking about nothing but the financial realities of spending money that we don't have to do wonderful things like help Ukraine defeat Vladimir Putin. Take a break. Back in a few. It was the music, Josh. We were all drunk high listening to a flock of seagulls when Reagan was convincing other Americans that weren't high, weren't drink, were listening to a flock of seagulls to build up the largest military armament man has ever known. It's all the flock of seagulls' fault. If it hadn't been for <laughs> booze, weed, and a flock of seagulls, we would have seen what Reagan was trying to do in uh, this post-Second World War II American empire that was well uh, underway. So there's the culprit, Rev. Uh, but the one thing we've landed mm-hmm. on today, had it not been for I ran so far in a flock of seagulls, we'd be in a very normal place um, today. I think you asked an That's interesting it. question, and I think it's a very fair question. And I think those of us who are converts and and have you know kind of um, asked for forgiveness – for our neoconservative sins of days gone by. What if the president spoke to the American people with his military leadership and looked us in the eye and said, here's what's at stake, and here's where the money comes from, and here's why we believe it's in America's best interest, but they don't do that. Right, because if we're arguing that part of our intellectual discussion and argument to question just the the open-ended funding of the Ukraine war, just because if, if our argument is that's the problem, if they did give us an explanation and they did provide a serious accounting of what the money has been used for and being used for, you know, is it worth considering if we're being true and intellectual and looking at it through, you know, through those lenses? So what if we, here's an interesting question. And, and, and this, this could convince me because once again, I come from the business world where the bottom line is what matters. I mean, you know, you got to have more coming in than going out. And right now, America doesn't, to the tune of about a trillion dollars a year. We were talking about 155 military shell, I mean, a millimeter shell. I don't have any idea. I mean, how big is 155 millimeter? I mean, it's bigger than shotgun shell. They're big, oh yeah. But it's not a bomb. I mean, it would be a big, um, multi-componented weapon, right? I mean, a shell, it's not a shotgun shell. It's not a rifle bullet. You bought Schofields. I mean, this would be uniquely different than it's a, that. It's about two feet long, according okay, that, to what I just Okay, that's a heard. big yeah. old shale. Yep. Here's my question. Weighs 100 pounds. So, wow. Um, how many 
people make a profit off that shale in America compared to Russia. I mean, just take that shale. That would be an interesting illustration of how much waste, fraud, and abuse there are in our federal government. That shale that we're sending to Ukraine, because J.D. Vance is convinced this is a, I mean, it's about firepower, as most wars are. I mean, you know, I got to believe that no matter how aggressive some Republicans are in supporting defending Ukraine, they're not going to send the latest, greatest. I mean, is that fair? I mean, can we all agree to that? I mean, even McConnell, I mean, he wears his Ukraine tie every day. And he's a product of the flock of seagulls era, not the Reagan <laughs> revolution, but the flock of seagulls era. Let's get our, our facts straight here. Right. But, but I got to believe that if McConnell sat down with um, our military leadership and the military leadership said to McConnell, Senator, if you can get that much money out of the Senate budget or out of it, a, uh, you know, a, uh, a Ukrainian funding bill, we'll send these unmanned drones. We'll send some of the javelins, some of the update, third generation javelins. We'll send the latest great. I believe McConnell would say, no, 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 no. I mean, I don't want to do that. I mean, that really puts us at risk. I mean, let's save those unmanned drones and, you know, the, 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 the super technologically advanced weaponry. Let's save this in case somebody storms the beaches of Myrtle Beach. You know, I mean, I, I, I get we got two big oceans. Jefferson wrote a lot about that. But let's not, not let's get crazy here. But, but at what point in time, and I'm asking, I mean, I don't know the answer to this. Let's say that some agree with funding Ukraine and some don't. I mean, there's philosophical, ideological differences. That there's, I mean, I, I guess an understanding of the complex world has to be a part of that. But, but at what point in time does dollar and cents matter? I mean, surely when you start spending $100 billion that you don't have, somebody's got to scratch their head and do a kind of a cost analysis because Josh will inherit that debt. Forget the objective. Forget whether it's right or wrong. Forget, you know, I mean, should we send the latest, greatest or not? At what point in time do political leadership in America have an obligation to taxpayers and future generations to say, look, as much as we'd like, to help Ukraine, we're spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have. We can't spend $1.1 trillion. It's the old can America walk and chew gum at the same time. And I've seen that argument a lot in the last two days on Twitter. So we can't secure the border and fund Ukraine. Are we that diminished? Are we in that much decline? Well, I mean, we can walk and chew gum. We just need to finance the gum. I mean, we, 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 we don't have the money to go in the store and buy the gum. We got to say, hey, Fed, we're going to the store to buy some gum because we can walk and chew gum at the same time, but we need you to buy the debt to buy the gum. I mean, that's kind of our business model. And and at what point in time do we have to begin considering the financial consequences of our inability to restrain or curtail spending? Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning. You're on. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh I got to disagree with you, Ken. The greatest music came out of the '60s and the '70s, and so uh, that's my that's my opinion about that. But Josh has really got some really good bumper music going these days. Um, 
it's been a it's been a great discussion and i'm a baby that grew up in the era of sputnik and the atomic age and whatnot and certainly uh, during my uh, early years uh, we we feared the russian bear you know they khrushchev tried to put the missiles into cuba so it's i would say it's hard for us older folks boomers if you will older boomers anyway um to really let go of this idea about the great russian threat I, my eyes are open now, and you've helped do this, and your show's certainly helped do this with me. And um, I would tell you, you know, this morning you're talking about uh, an accountability for the funds that we're sending to Ukraine. What well, sounds like some of them are saying, well, it's not really – some of the funds aren't going to Ukraine. They're going to repurchase artillery shells and things like that. But Daphne raised a good point there. A lot of this money is going to support the pensions and whatnot uh, – the administration of Ukraine, and I have a real problem with that. Um, but you know, if we 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 can't even account for the funds that we give the Defense Department, I don't know when the last time was that the Defense Department was able to undergo a, an audit, because uh, we don't know we don't know where all that all the billions of dollars uh, go with them. And I'm, I'm coming to the realization that if we're going to spend a lot of this money on artillery shells. Our country restocking our inventory of artillery shells. We're wasting our money because the next great battle that comes is not going to be with artillery shells and, and tanks. Uh, and if Russia was to invade a NATO country, I, I don't think that's where we're going to really have our, our biggest concern. Our biggest concern at that point will be China. And we've got to worry about China, and we're losing sight of China. And I believe that all China has to do is flip a switch and they'll shut our grid down and we we won't be able to do much of anything. And so we can't lose. But, but Sam, 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 stick with me for a second. Let me ask you a question. You've thought through some of this as I try to. If China flips that switch, what price do they pay? I mean, we, we are their consumer. We are their marketplace. I mean, there, there's China cannot exist as a nation without the support of American consumerism. So if they flip that switch in some geopolitical savvy way, don't they play an enorm don't they pay a reciprocating enormous price as a result of? Yes, they could, but I think that would be their final uh, th I think that would be their final uh attempt uh to win the battle. So you it's believe the that's the day they decouple. Yes. Okay. You know their their, their goal is is global domination sure. to be the number one country, and how far will they go uh, to achieve that goal? They are a country of thousands and thousands of years, and they believe that they need to uh, regain their global empire. And so, the, and these crazies, you know, we, we've got so many crazies in our, our administration, and I'm sure they're just as crazy in China too. So. You just, you know, that's that's one of the perplexing things. I, I never thought at my age that I would see the issues going on in this country and the pathetic leadership that we have in both houses and in the presidency. And you talk about discouraged. I'm a discouraged person. But you guys give me, and the callers in, especially Daphne. I tell you, Daphne is right on all kinds of good things. I really enjoy her her commentary. But uh, we can't lose sight of the real goal. You know, this could be a distraction. Ukraine is a minor problem relative to uh, our biggest threat. Russia is not our biggest threat. It's China that's our biggest threat, and we need to focus on that. And that border down there, that, that's a real problem, too. So anyway, great, sh great show this morning, and uh, that was a great uh, uh, 
uh, segment that you had there from seven, at seven o'clock. I don't know J.D. Vance that well. I don't see him that much on television. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, it was a good section. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. You're not going to see much of J.D. Vance. I mean, the, the legacy media don't want people intellectually arguing on behalf of America first. You're, you're not going to, the, the, the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. I, mean, I don't know how many of you know that story. Lee Strobel was a, uh, a law editor at Chicago Tribune, Stanford graduate, I mean, you know, successful lawyer, really bright man, um, had a, a situation in his family, I think his child choked at a restaurant. Um, there was a kind of a, um, an EMS agent at the restaurant on that moment and saved his kid's life. As a result, his wife became uh, interested and curious about Christianity and Jesus. Um, she thought it was God's will that her child choked in that restaurant, but God had placed an angel there. She got real emotionally attached to Christianity. She went on a pursuit. She accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. And Lee Strobel <laughs> basically said, oh, crap. I mean, we built this pretty good secular existence, and now we're going to bake sales and help the homeless and care about other people and give some of our money away. And you know how those crazy Christians are. So he set out to prove his wife wrong, and he did it as he was creating a case. He did it as a lawyer would. Um, he's going to indict Jesus for being a fraud. And at the end of his journey, and I'm talking about, guys, he went to the Holy Land. I mean, I'll give you an example. The Scripture says when the Romans pierced Christ with a sword, water and then blood oozed. And he's going like, well, he went to see a medical professional. And the medical professional said that would be, I mean, after a, a human being goes through such an excruciating last you know few days or last few hours of existence but the body does something i mean it's a medical condition and it would stand to reason that fluid and then blood would come out um in the garden of gethsemane it says christ bled you know christ sweat blood well i mean he went that's impossible well i mean he he went to other medical professionals because he's building a case against christ i mean he's building a case that christ was a fraud his wife's born again she wants to go to bake sales and and not you know the the not the uh, carol king concert that they become so accustomed to being a part of, raising money for the furry animals. You know, she wants to do God's work all of a sudden. But anyway, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ sweat blood, there is a medical condition, and it's happened on death row before, that, that someone becomes so full of anxiety that they literally, blood seeps through their skin. I mean, it's very rare, and it takes just an unbelievable degree of anxiety. So by the end of his pursuit, he hits his knees in his office and says, hey, who, he's who he says he was. You know, he's, um, he's now a great defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess where you never see him? <laughs> on CNN. <laughs> I mean, I think he went on one time. Who's this lawyer that wrote this book called The Case for Christ? And he comes on Larry King, and he explains and articulates in the most unbelievably intelligent way why he now believes that Jesus is who he says he was. And CNN says, hey, well, let that guy back on. <laughs> let one of these raving lunatics who bomb abortion centers. I mean, that's who we want talking about Christianity. Well, I mean, J.D. Vance is the same guy. J.D. Vance was allowed once on one of these network shows, and he just explained America first in the most intelligent way 
And I got to believe all the hierarchy at the major network said, who let him on? Do we not, can we not find a rube or a hayseed that would come on and yell and scream about isolationism and racism and, you know, uh, misogyny and uh, xenophobe? I mean, find us one of them. Don't let this smart guy with a very compelling story about coming from Appalachia and being around opioids and addiction and poor people and crime and goes to Yale and graduates with honors and buys into this America first ideology or philosophy. We can't let that guy on these, um, on these shows. So, um, I mean, you're not going to see much of JD Vance in the political mainstream or in the media, uh, mainstream. I know we're getting ready to take a break here, but I don't want to get to the end of the show before, uh, we talk a little bit about the situation in New York. So the Republicans expel a member of Congress they have an election. I guess it was a special election yesterday. And basically, they flip that district to a Democrat district, correct? Correct. And you want to know why? Yeah, I want to know what you think about that. Because we had a razor-thin majority. I say the Republicans had a razor-thin majority in Congress in the House up until... That's why they rushed the Mayorkas impeachment uh, hearing. Now, now it's razor-thinner. Yeah. Even it, 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 there's no majority... If Gallagher and Buck, who are retiring, do what they do, it's a dead heat. I mean, it's a, it's a tie, and we know who votes in the case of a tie. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. But if you want to state the obvious or hear someone state the obvious, we are your go-to guy, right? Health insurance is expensive. It's complicated. If you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, if you don't eat four pieces of chicken um, after eating your fourth plate at the buffet. Um, and I know they subsidize flood insurance. I get that. Uh, I'm being a bit hypocritical here <laughs> in my, uh, in my shared responsibility or my opinion of collectivism <laughs> and redistributionism. Um, but we, we can all agree it's complicated. It's expensive. If you're under 65, if you're reasonably healthy, there's a pretty good chance you're paying too much for health insurance. Call Christian Levis at 839 839- 888-3970-839-888-3970 or go to his website, realchoicehealthcare.com, realchoicehealthcare.com. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Ken. Uh, you had uh, Rick Wilson on there, and I always remember him. If you want to visualize this guy, he was on Don Lemon's show back in the day. And he called the Trump voter credulous boomer rubes. Uh, and think about, and, and, he, and he said, Trump can't find Ukraine on a map. And then think about Don Lemon. I'm going to segue to Nikki Haley. He, Don Lemon thinks Nikki Haley's over 50 years old. She's out the pasture, whatever. She's past her, I mean, Nikki's in a prime. I give her credit as far as being a politician. And I was thinking about this, Ken, these polls that we talk about, did they take, because the Democrats went first this time in South Carolina in the polls. So if you look, I'm, I'm, I'm in the primary. So that's part of Nikki's strategy. Do the polls take into account Democrat independent voters? I've seen one poll, David, and I quoted that poll, and I've seen some internals that, that I can't, I mean, I, I've not seen some of the internals, but I've heard about some of the internals. The Trump team believes that, obviously, the more Democrats that vote, the worse they do. They believe they hold their own with independents. 
But if that number gets north of 20%, in other words, if the number of non-Republican voters vote in the Republican primary and it exceeds 20%, Trump starts losing. I mean, he doesn't lose, but he doesn't win as overwhelmingly. And and I've seen models that have it at 18. I've seen models have it at 22 and, and 23. North of 20%, Trump still wins by 16, 17%. Well, she kind of touched my heart yesterday. She's was in Bamberg. That's her hometown. Uh, I grew up closer there, and she went to Bluffton. Now, let's think about this, Ken. Let's call this the J.D. Vance Lock of Seagulls 2A football bus tour because uh, J.D. loves the small towns. And if you go through these small towns, I don't know what her route was yesterday, but if you, you start out in Bamberg, you go down 301, you go to Allendale, you take a left, Highway 278 in Fairfax, uh, you go to Hampton. That's where Alec Murdoch played at, by the way. Uh, and I think they merged with Estill. You go through Ridgeland, Hardyville, somewhere along the line, you end up in Bluffton. And you look at all those towns that I started out with, it's amazing how there's hardly any growth, you know, until you get to Bluffton. And then the thing about Bluffton, where is their growth at? I call it that new Republican that we've talked about. And But I feel for all those people that are they're stranded in a way on Highway 301 and 278 and 321 down in that area. And if you really think about true growth, is it just Bluffton's that people come down there and retire? So. That's always been my thing. I think uh, Bluffton has gone from 500 people back in the day, the H.E. McCracken days, now to 35,000. These other towns haven't grown at all. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. David brought up Rick Wilson. I'm thinking about Rick Wilson of NASCAR fame. Drove the Kodak car there for a period of time. Morgan McClure. I know more about NASCAR than I do Gamecock football. And the real sports world starts this Sunday. I mean, the, um, we had kind of a um, – I don't know, Rev, with the Super Bowl and the UConn Gamecock women basketball game be on equal footing? I mean, you would you would look at one equal to the other? No, I think you could argue, sure. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so, so we've already had that. We've yeah. had a, yeah. uh, a, a women's basketball showdown with two of the elite <laughs> programs in America and a Super Bowl, and both were warm-ups for what is to come, I think, beginning tonight. If I'm not mistaken, Daytona 500 qualifying is today. Some of the qualifying races are tomorrow, and then Saturday and Sunday, you've got the um, the main event Sunday, the Daytona 500, kind of different. They begin their season with their Super Bowl. I mean, that's what they always take great pride in, the great American race of the Daytona 500. But back to Rick Wilson that doesn't drive a race car. I've, I mean, when, when Trump comes out of the gate and they don't take him seriously, I don't have any idea when someone like Rick Wilson began thinking to themselves. They probably thought of themselves before they publicly said, hey, this guy can win. I mean, I, you know, I don't remember back then what Wilson had to say. But, but I've always wondered this. What is the advantage of insulting an army of voters? I mean, I get insulted the candidate. I do. I understand more than you believe your problem with Trump. I get that. I mean, I, I understand that up one side and down the other. You've got a problem with Donald Trump. But why would you insult millions and millions and millions of Americans 
who historically have been low propensity voters and now because of this one guy have decided to better or more enthusiastically engage in the process. I don't understand that. I mean, I understand hurt feelings. I understand losing control. I, I get that. I mean, that, that's frustrating. I mean, you, you build a machine, you fed at the trough of that machine. You know, your, your life is better than you ever imagined. You're not sure what it is you do, but checks keep coming in the mail. I mean, Conservative Inc. was a big, enormous, I mean, as big as the government is, that machine that kind of ran the government behind the scenes, I mean, it was a force to be reckoned with. A lot of people made enormous amounts of money not making widgets, not contributing to GDP, not employing a bunch of people, but just in the, in the ambiguity of politics. So I understand when Trump shows up and there's kind of a, you know, a paradigm shift. I get that. I understand. I mean, if I were Root Wilson, I'd be hot and bothered because somebody changed my world. Somebody fundamentally changed my world. But what do you gain by trying to reposition yourself? And the first thing you do is insult millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans. I don't understand that. There have been a few Republicans that I've heard. I told someone at lunch yesterday, talking about a race in Charleston County. Um, Catherine Templeton has announced she's running against Nancy Mace for that congressional seat. I would imagine Catherine will be well-funded because Mace has kind of curried favor with Trump. I mean, they had a rough patch to begin with, but Nancy, I think, did the math and said, look, I mean, I can't not be, at, at least to some degree, supportive of Trump and his agenda and his policies because I need his voters. I mean, there's so many of them. I just, and, and Catherine, I, I guess we'll try to figure out. I mean, I don't know what she'll do, but I would imagine that Catherine will try to thread that needle. And I think, I think that the threading of the needle is you can insult Trump at times. I mean, you can do that, but you can't insult his voters. I mean, that there's an association that the voter and Trump have one with another. Is it sincere? I don't have any idea. I mean, I get asked that all the time. It's almost like when someone asks me if I think Trump is sincere, they're in dog whistle asking me to defend my support of Trump. I mean, they don't want to say, hey, you, you, you're better than that. I mean, how do you support Donald Trump? So they'll say, hey, do you think he's sincere? Well, I mean, I'm not that dumb. I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm not a brain surgeon, but I'm not politically illiterate. Um, I know what you're asking me. You're asking me to defend my support of Trump. I don't have any problem with that. But, but the one thing I can't answer, because I don't know Trump's heart. I mean, I don't have any idea how sincere he is about the engagement he has with the universe of voters who, as I've said over and over and over again, aren't really Republicans. There are many millions of Americans who historically have not participated. Trump brought those people to the dance. And Rick Wilson, who has made a living off Republican politics, decides on network television or cable television to insult those people as hayseeds, rubes, uneducated, dumb, illiterate. Yeah, good luck with that. And that's why, I mean, he's a Democrat. He's never been a Republican. I believe that there has to be a certain number of insiders masquerading themselves as Republicans. There ain't a conservative bone in their body because conservatism says what? Limit government. You're making a living off government. I mean, how oxymoronic is it for me to make a living off government 
while simultaneously lobbying for smaller government. I've always believed the beauty of the machine is finding those who will declare themselves Republicans but don't believe one iota in what they're saying. There's got to be a boogeyman. There's got to be somebody inside the machine masquerading as resistance to the machine, and that's all they are. I mean, they're shields. They're, they're, you know, they're props. They don't, they don't oppose big government. I mean, Rev, if you made a living and your living got better and better, the bigger and bigger government got, I mean, why would you oppose big government? You, you wouldn't. Right. I mean, it would, be, it would be dumb. I mean, forget complicated answers. It would be dumb to make a living off government but advocate for government being smaller. So Rick Wilson has never been a conservative. He's masqueraded as a conservative, and that means he stands for nothing. I mean, he, 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 it was all about the money with, with Rick Wilson. It's always, always, always. Always. You mean sometimes? About the money. Not sometimes. You mean, you mean most Not times? Not most of the time. It's always about the money. Take a break. Back in a few. My wife is far smarter than I am. I flipped my phone over a second ago. She sends me a text. You might want to send our daughter, I won't say her name, something for Valentine's. That's my wife's real coy way of reminding me that it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> Or she didn't say send me something or think of right. me, but rather. Did you yeah. send her something? Oh, I've got a, I, I've got a plethora of uh, <laughs> things in store. And, and you know, um, she knows that I'm bad. My family didn't make a big deal of those days. Her family did. I mean, they, they celebrated everything that came down the pike. My dad was just like, <laughs> enough of the nonsense. I mean, let's get back to work. Right. Let's get back to doing things that Valentine's are Valentine's Day is a manufactured holiday. Yeah, right? well, I mean, and, by, but, but to, by Hallmark and but to candy her credit, companies. they gather, as I say, the country, they gom up <laughs> on every third quarter of the moon and, you know, the, the nor'easter hitting. Anyway, uh, but anyway, she politely reminded me to do something nice for our daughter without saying do something nice for me. And listeners that, that have been, you know, up early this morning, I mean, you did address Valentine's in the 6 o'clock hour. I did. Yeah. Good I did. for you. Yeah. I'm proud of you for remembering. Yeah, <laughs> I am. So, so the female's voice you hear is not my wife nor daughter, but rather Kimberly Basso. Yes. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good so morning. Thanks got, for having you've me. you've got extended experience in radio, but I not do. as Kimberly Basso. I was Maddie Jarrett for okay. a very long time. Um uh, both on Eagle 92.9, and then I also spent some time on 103X. Um, and then corporate radio comes along, yes, and the and, world changes. And change things. <laughs> now, Riz um, told me that. Riz says, you are fortunate that you didn't live in the era of corporate radio it, and technology taking mm-hmm. over human uh, human labor or human personalities. But now you are working at the Florence County Library. Yes, I'm the new marketing librarian. So they haven't had one in the past. It's a new position. And I was very excited to do it because essentially the thing that they hear the most is that we were not aware of that event. We didn't know that y'all did that. We didn't know. Um, So my entire purpose is to try to get the word out, to let people know what the library does. I think when you say library, the very first thing people think of is books. Well, I don't read. That's not for me. And that is not true. So we do more than books. Now, first of all, I do want to say that, yes, we do books <laughs> and people still love books. People still are reading books. Don't let don't let the, you know, the numbers fool you. They have stories different ways. But um, we have books. We have ebooks. We have a program called Libby. People love to read um, on their Kindles, on their phones. And you can do that for free by getting a library card, installing the Libby app on your phone. And then you can borrow a book for two weeks and it takes it 
off your phone immediately or off your Kindle immediately. Um, and you're still a library user if you do that. But we have so many more services and events and programs that are free and open to the public. Um, and that's why I'm here today to talk about. Okay, that well, stuff. if it's not just about books, I mean, I, I played football, so I didn't know what the inside of a library looked like. But um, <laughs> but but you've got a special guest, a survivor of the Emanuel Church shooting in Charleston, coming to the library to tell their story. Yeah. So um, I think everybody, especially here in South Carolina, we remember when that happened. Um, it was such a tragic, devastating event. But worldwide, people knew about that story. But Miss Polly, Miss Polly Shepard, grew up here in Florence, so she has ties to our community, and she eventually became a nurse. And she was there that day during the the uh, shooting at Emanuel AME Church, and she survived that shooting. And so now it is her purpose to go around and talk to people, tell people about how she survived that day. But she also has a foundation. She gives back. And so for students and young people that want to grow up to become a nurse, she has a foundation with scholarships that helps those people. So she's going to come in and talk to us at the library on uh, Tuesday, February 20th at 530. And again, that's free and open to the public. So you can just show up to the library. And then there's also a documentary about that day. It's called Emmanuel. And we're going to show that movie documentary on Friday, February 23rd at 10 a.m. That is also free. We're going to show the film at the library so you can stop by and see that. Another event. We don't believe that everyone has a personal accountant, but we sometimes believe that everyone has the assets required to file their taxes. You folks know better than that. So you're (laughs) providing certain services during tax season. Correct. And I was just talking to one of your coworkers and they said, well, I do my taxes uh, on the computer now. But here's the thing. Even if you use an at-home computer, you still have to mail your taxes in at the end and you have to mail in your W-2s. A lot of people have their W-2s come in on a website. They have to print them out. Well, what if you you don't have a printer at home? What if your printer's out of ink? That's the big one. And ink is so expensive nowadays. People still need to print things out and they also need to get different forms. And so you can come to the library. We have the booklets. We have the federal. We have the state booklets with instructions for you. We can also print out forms for you. And then at our Timminsville branch, so we have different branches around. Did I talk about that? So we Mm -hmm. have Florence is our headquarters on Dargan Street. All of the branches will have the booklets and the tax forms to help you. But at our Timminsville branch, um, we will actually have a member of the AARP there. And they will sit down with you and help you do the taxes. You need to make an appointment with that. You can go to FlorenceLibrary.org, look up the branch Timminsville, and that will give you the information for how to do that. Okay. It's still a busy place for kids. Absolutely. Young young kids, a little bit older kids, toddlers. What sort of activities are available for families with kids? Kids, families. um, We have story times, and they can do family ones that happen in the evenings, and then in the mornings they break it down into age groups, so babies, toddlers, a little bit older, and they can come in. We also have a teen. We have a teen librarian. She does programs that are aimed just at teens. They have a gaming club. They have crafts. So we try to make sure that they're in there with their peers, and, of course, the family story times, you can be in there with your children, um, and everybody can, can be together. So we try to make sure that no matter where you are in life, if you're a young professional like me, last night we did a craft. Um, if you have a family, if you're a single parent, all of that. We have law talks coming up. I don't think you have this information. We just had this come down. Um, so if you are going or thinking about a divorce, not mm-hmm. you because you mm-hmm. took care of Valentine's mm-hmm. Day, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
too far down this road to turn around. Or if you need to figure out how to do a will or probate, um, these are just things that happen in everybody's life. Everybody has legal questions. So, of course, we're going to have a professional from the South Carolina Bar Association come in. It's not It's not going to be me, for sure. Um, they're going to come in uh, Thursday, February 15th. All of these programs are happening on Thursday at 5 p.m. But we'll have wills, estates, and probates on the 15th. We'll do, they'll come in, do an overall presentation, then have a Q&A. So you can actually ask questions about what you need. Um, they're going to do divorce on the 21st of March, elder law and end of life on April 25th, and then starting a business. If you've ever thought about, hey, I want to start a business, what are the legalities of that? You can come in on May 16th. And again, all of this information about the times and dates are on FlorenceLibrary.org. Okay, FlorenceLibrary.org. That's yes. kind of the Grand Central Station of gathering information about mm -hmm. what's now, what's next. Yep, absolutely. Okay, thank yeah. you very much. You're welcome. Good to see you. Good but to see you. I, I would be the, the new hand at radio in the studio, Rev. That's with, true. With you and Maddie. <laughs> right. mean, you're talking about how your, your paths have crossed over the years. Mm -hmm. How did you escape corporate radio? I'm just lucky, I guess. Yeah, just, lucky. And, just lucky. And I would ask. But I've heard the horror stories. Yeah, oh, and, and I've, I've seen them and heard them. And I guess the fact that I'm still here and we're doing live and local radio. So that'd be my question, Kimberly. You're in, you're in our facility today for the first time. You spent a lot of years in radio, corporate radio. And um, what's it like being back in where we have, you know, three live shows going on down the hall, you know, between Mudflap and Palmer and Alan Smothers and Josilia. Um, what's it like being back in a live and local radio station? It heals my heart. It does. People don't, people talk to me all the time. They're upset that I'm not on the radio. And I'm like, you don't understand about corporate and how it all works. But it broke my heart what they, what has happened to certain, um, radio stations and <laughs> clusters and how just how things go down. Um, I think that it, you know, it's a lot to talk about, but yeah, it heals my heart that it's still happening that way. We can still talk about what is happening here right. in Florence. You folks are trailblazers, and I got the free ride. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Uh, enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.